Welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I'm Bo Ransdell, and myself, along with my co-host, Chad Cooper, are here to take a look at six movies every season built around a single theme. This time around, our theme has been, you can do it, an examination of the sexiest and worst movies we could find. And it has all been leading to this. That's right, it's the peak, the height, the ecstatic climax of season six of Pick Six Movies. We've magicked all our mics, we've tended our basic instincts, gotten frisky with wild things, and we also watch Fifty Shades of Grey. But we have saved the best, nay worst for last. And this is a long one, no getting around it, so buckle in, Chad's got a great intro coming for ya, and all I have to do to light this candle is to say, ladies and gentlemen, get the rhinestones on the nipples, it's 1995's Showgirls. When you think about pornography and film, there's really one name that immediately leaps to mind. Thomas Edison. Edison is credited with inventing the first motion picture camera, and he was the one that established 35mm film as the universally accepted film size. Once upon a time, 35mm film was actually called Edison size. Edison built the first film production studio where in 1894 he shot the first film, the Edison Kinescope Record of a Sneeze, or as it's known on the streets, Fred Ott Sneeze, or as it's known more commonly, well that's gross. A few months later, an employee of Edison's, William Dixon, he filmed Carmencita, which featured a female Spanish dancer spinning around and showing off her, oh my legs and undergarments. This scandalous cinematic sensation was deemed inappropriate, and the projection of these moving pictures was banned from public viewing, thus ushering in the beginnings of modern-day film censorship and naughtiness on the silver screen. A few years later, a boxing match between James Corbett and Bob Fitzsimmons was filmed in Carson City, Nevada. The resulting film was called the Corbett Fitzsimmons Fight. That's clever. And this film ran over a hundred minutes and is the first documentary and feature film ever made. And it also highlighted the need for the occupation of film editor. At the time, boxing or prize fighting, as some called it, it wasn't legal in every state. But showing a movie of people beating each other up, well, that wasn't illegal. Well, not yet anyway. As social outrage caught up to technological advances, seven states, including those stuck-up prudes in New York, well, they passed laws that would fine anybody who showed this 100-minute-long boxing match. A decade later, it was the city of Chicago that really laid down the law when it came to censoring movies in any meaningful way. Chicago had over 100 Nickelodeons in the city, and this upset a portion of the easily outraged public. So local officials gave the chief of police the subjective authority to issue permits for what movies he deemed inappropriate for public viewing. 
One would think that this type of authority would lead to corruption or possible bribery. But come on, this is Chicago we're talking about, a city known as much for its morally upstanding elected officials as it is for its collective aversion of getting drunk and setting police cars on fire after winning a national sports championship. Needless to say, the power of issuance of fines and permits led to the generation of lawsuits, which marched their way right up to the good old U.S. Supreme Court. And guess what? In this case of overreaching abuse of moral censorship, justice prevailed for the city of Chicago because they walked away with the right to clamp down on those unwholesome movies being shown in the city. Social prudes won, movie folk zero. Following this decision, the fine folks of Chicago went so far as to start handing out special pink permits to identify movies that were adult-only to keep the God-fearing citizens away from these unreputable films. This, in turn, attracted all the perverts and the licky-loos who saw these pink slips essentially as advertisements for good times on the silver screen. Now, back over in New York City in 1909, the mayor took it upon himself to close 550 theaters because their police chief claimed, quote, most movie material was reprehensible, end quote. If that's the case, most movie theaters today would be shut down. All these subjective fines and theater closings led the Mutual Film Corporation, which was a newsreel company, well, they got really pissed off at how they were getting charged fees regarding what they could and, more importantly, what they couldn't show in theaters. So the Mutual Film Corporation pulled out their pocket constitution, stood up on a soapbox, and proudly said this is a First Amendment issue, and they shouldn't be subject to this type of censorship. And the U.S. Supreme Court agreed with the Ohio Industrial Commission in the case of Mutual versus Ohio Industrial Commission. Social prudes, too movie folk a still zero. In this case, Chief Justice Edward White wrote, The exhibition of movie pictures is a business, pure and simple, originated and conducted for profit like other spectacles and not to be regarded as part of the press of the country or as origins of public opinion within the meaning of freedom of speech and publication. So with no protection from the First Amendment, in 1922, the movie industry decided to create the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, or the MPPDA. Look, it should be noted that the formation of the MPPDA came about not just because of perceived injustices related to film censorship. There was some real backlash related to the release of a few pretty risque films, as well as some off-screen scandals that really rocked Hollywood, most notably the murder of William Desmond Taylor and the alleged rape of a woman by then-movie star Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. So there was quite a bit of public condemnation from civic groups that wasn't totally unfounded. Public perception by many was that the movie industry had always been morally questionable. Not like today where, generally speaking, the public views Hollywood as a source of exemplary moral behavior to be modeled by young and old alike. Ain't that right, Mr. Weinstein? To head up the MPAA, Enter Presbyterian elder Will H. Hayes to rehabilitate Hollywood's image. Hayes was paid $100,000 a year, which is almost one and a half million bucks adjusted for inflation. Hayes had an interesting resume serving as Warren G. Harding's postmaster general, and he was the former head of the Republican National Committee. 
Presbyterian elder, postmaster general, former head of the RNC? How could this go wrong? In 1924, Hayes introduced a set of recommendations that were known as the formula, which it was highly encouraged filmmakers follow step-by-step. Step. Plus, filmmakers were also asked to describe the plots of the movies that they were planning on making to the Hayes office prior to the start of their production. In the breakdown of the formula, there was a list of don'ts and a separate section called be careful. The don'ts list included pointed profanity, which included the use of the word God and Jesus, Christ, and lest used reverently. You couldn't say hell or damn or galled with a W. And every other profane and vulgar expression, however it would be spelled out. There was no nudity, even in silhouette, no illegal drugs, no inference of sex perversion, whatever that means. No white slavery. Didn't really make a whole lot of mention of black slavery. I'm looking at you, birth of a nation. No miscegenation, which is sexual relationships between white people and black people. There could be no mention of venereal diseases. Scenes of actual childbirth were banned. In fact, or in silhouette. What's with all the silhouettes in this thing? You couldn't show children sex organs. <laughs> okay. You couldn't ridicule the clergy. Lastly, there was to be no willful offense to any nation, race, or creed. Pretty much means no movie could ever be made ever without offending anybody. Now, there was a separate list of the carefuls. This was even longer. Some highlights from that. The use of the flag. American, of course. You had to be careful with arson. How firearms were used. Uh, the careful list included theft, robbery, safe cracking, and dynamiting of trains, mines, and buildings, etc. because of the effect which a too detailed description of these things might have upon the moron, meaning select members of the movie-going audience. Rape or attempted rape also landed on the careful list. Seems like that should really be on the don't list, but you know what? I was raised Methodist, Presbyterian elders must have a different threshold for don'ts and carefuls. The MPPDA set up this motion picture production code, which later came to be known as the Hayes Code. It really didn't get any power until it teamed up with the Legion of Decency, an organization that was backed by the Catholic Church. That had to be a fun bunch. Once the MPPDA and the Legion of Decency hooked up, the MPPDA only approved movies that the Legion of Decency said were fit for public viewing. Leave it to the Catholics to make sure that the public isn't exposed to something that may forever damage them psychologically. The Legion of Decency had three ratings. A for alright, alright, alright. And anybody could see those movies. There was the B rating, which was for better watch it, mister meaning that this movie might be questionable. And then there was the dreaded C rating, which meant condemned. Now, a little later, B and C were combined into the O rating, which stood for offensive. And these ratings were kind of all over the place as they related to movies. For example, the original 1947 Miracle on 34th Street was given a B rating because there was a divorced mom in it. Mel Brooks's The Producers was given a C rating because you might die laughing if you go see that movie. The MPPDA didn't approve the Howard Hughes film The Outlaw because there were too many shots of Jane Russell's breast. Now Hughes argued that Jane Russell's breast needed to be shown in that movie and I agree. 
Jane Russell's breasts should be seen frequently. Hayes headed up the MPPDA for over two decades, and in 1945, Eric Johnson replaced Hayes. And Johnson rebranded the organization as the Motion Picture Association of America, or the MPAA. Maybe you've heard of that. Johnson oversaw the first major revision of the production code since it was created. This revision allowed some subjects, which had previously been forbidden, to be included in movies. This included abortion, the use of narcotics, so long as they were, quote, within the limits of good taste. But the revisions added a number of new restrictions to the code, including outlawing mercy killings in films. Johnson was well-liked by studio executives, and his political connections helped him function as an effective liaison between Hollywood and Washington. In 1963, while serving as the president of the MPAA, Johnson died of a stroke. And for three years, the MPAA operated without a president, while studio executives searched for a replacement, which they found in Jack Valenti. Valenti decided the movie production code suffered from the, quote, odious smell of censorship, end quote. There was a growing list of lawsuits related to the code, citing issues of censorship and referencing our most favorite of the amendments, the first one. Valenti introduced the concept of the MPAA having a voluntary rating system, with three organizations as its monitors for these ratings. These included, first, the MPAA, second, the National Association of Theater Owners, and lastly, the International Film Importers and Distributors of America. The rating system included the following categories. Rated G, suggested for general audiences. Rated M, for mature audiences, parental discretion advised. Rated R, restricted, Persons under 16 not admitted, unless accompanied by a parent or adult guardian. And rated X, person under 16 not admitted. The rated M classification was later changed to GP, guidance from parents. But then this later evolved into PG, meaning parental guidance. Now in the early 1980s, parents complained that movies like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Gremlins, which were both rated PG, were too batshit crazy and insanely scary for small children. So at the request of Steven Spielberg, the director and producer respectively of the aforementioned batshit crazy and insanely scary films, well he suggested a new rating that would fall between PG and R. And in 1984, the PG-13 rating classification was introduced. PG-13 movies suggested that parents are strongly cautioned and that some material may be inappropriate for children under 13 years of age. It also meant that you could say fuck at least one time in a movie without getting an R rating. In 1989, the smart people of the great state of Tennessee passed a state law that set the minimum age to view a theatrically exhibited R-rated film without adult accompaniment at 18 years of age instead of 17. And they made taking a minor to an X-rated movie a misdemeanor. Way to go, Tennessee. See, the thing you gotta remember is that at this time, an X-rated movie meant that anyone under the age of 18 was not granted admission. In the rating system, X-rated films were just meant to be unsuitable for children. But the MPAA never trademarked the X rating, which they did with all of their other ratings, and it was usurped by the pornography industry when these auteurs of sexy films took it upon themselves to just rate all of their movies X. Well, because they were pornographic feature films with nudity between men and women and lots of other combinations of people and things, so I've heard. Oftentimes, these peddlers of smut would add more than one X to their films, sometimes doubling the rating to a double X, 
or heck, even triple X, just to show off how inappropriate their movies were for the movie-going public and really crank up the interest of red-blooded American dads everywhere. But you have to remember, Rated X was a legit movie rating. Quite a few mainstream and really good movies were given X ratings that weren't porno films. A Clockwork Orange, The Evil Dead, and Midnight Cowboy, they all received X ratings. But over time, Rated X began to mean one thing for the movie going public, porno. It also meant in the industry, no distribution of X-rated movies in theaters. So movies like Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, and The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, they fought really hard to get R ratings, but no dice. X marked the spot, and these films struggled to succeed with limited box office release. So in September of 1990, the MPAA told the porno industry to take their double X and triple X ratings and just go stick it. And it was here that the MPAA introduced the much more classy rating, NC-17. No children under 17 admitted. Henry and June, which had previously been assigned an X rating, was the first film to receive the NC-17 rating, providing it more distribution options when compared to other X-rated movies. Or at least, that's what everybody thought would happen. It turns out that many theaters refused to screen NC-17 movies as well. In 1996, the minimum age for NC-17 films was raised to 18 by rewording it to no one 17 and under admitted. And much like its ancestor, the X rating, the NC-17 rating proved disastrous for movies that received it. An NC-17 rating immediately reduced the marketing reach of a film and the number of theaters that would screen it. And so it was that the NC-17 rating delivered its kiss of death leaving big red lipstick prints on the cheek of the subject of this episode. Showgirls was released in 1995 with an NC-17 rating, and it was the most widely distributed movie that had this toxic rating, as it appeared in just shy of 1,400 theaters in the United States. But the NC-17 rating wasn't why Showgirls bombed at the box office. In fact, it may have been why it succeeded as much as it did. Joe Esterhaus conceived the idea for Showgirls while vacationing at his home in Maui, Hawaii. Coming off of the success of Basic Instinct, a film that was directed by Paul Verhoeven, Esterhaus reached out to his movie-making partner Verhoeven and pitched the idea of a big MGM-style musical set in the modern-day world of Las Vegas Showgirls. Esterhaus and Verhoeven spoke with hundreds of Las Vegas strippers and showgirls and he took bits of one life story here and parts of another life story there and pulled together the final screenplay for Showgirls, which would ultimately strive to showcase the exploitation of strippers in Las Vegas. Showgirls' plot centers on Naomi Malone, a young female who makes her way to Las Vegas and climbs up the ranks from low-level stripper to classy showgirl. Everybody was considered for the role of Naomi. Pamela Anderson, obviously. Drew Barrymore, eh, not so obviously. Angelina Jolie, Jenny McCarthy, Denise Richards, Charlize Theron, but they all turned it down. And so it was that Elizabeth Berkley, who was more famously known as Jessie on the preteen sitcom Saved by the Bell, that ultimately signed on to play Naomi. In the film, the young, wide-eyed Naomi faces off against a more 
experienced dancer, Crystal Connors. Many actresses were considered for this role as well, including Madonna, Sharon Stone, Sean Young, Daryl Hannah, but ultimately it was Gina Gershon who was cast. Twin Peaks' own FBI special agent Dale Cooper, aka Kyle McLaughlin, was cast to play Crystal's boyfriend, Zach. McLaughlin says that Dillick McDermott, or maybe it was Dermot Mulroney, either way, one of them, was the first choice for the character of Zach Carey, but whichever one of them it was, declined the part, so McLaughlin was cast as Zach. Esther House was paid $2 million to write the script, and then he got another $1.7 million when it was picked up to be made into a film, and at the time, Esther House found himself as the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood history. Paul Verhoeven was set to direct the movie, but he decided to defer 70% of his $6 million director's fee, depending upon if Showgirls turned a profit, which it didn't. The movie had a budget of about $45 million and was made with the knowledge that it would have an NC-17 rating. There was preliminary controversy related to the movie's amount of sex and nudity, especially since it was starring Jesse from Saved by the Bell. Showgirls was the first, and at the time of this recording, the only NC-17 rated film to be given a wide release in mainstream theaters. Reportedly, the film's distributor, United Artists, dispatched hundreds of staffers to theaters showing the movie to ensure that nobody would sneak in from other movies and to make sure that everybody who went in to see the film was over the age of 17. Thanks a lot, Tennessee. Although the movie had a lot of hype around its debut, that's all it really turned out to be. Just hype. As bad reviews and the restricted audience criteria due to that NC-17 rating, the film underperformed at the box office. Showgirls opened up on September 22nd, 1995, and it came in second right behind the Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box thriller, Seven. Showgirls went on to gross just $37 million at the box office, far below its budget, as well as falling below the expectations set by Verhoeven's previous directorial successes. Esther House took out a full-page advertisement in Variety to defend the film. He described the movie as a morality tale and called the advertising of the film misguided. He also wrote, The movie shows that dancers in Vegas are often victimized, humiliated, used, verbally and physically raped by the men who are at the power centers of that world. Las Vegas, what a terrible place for female entertainers. Not like here in Hollywood, eh, Mr. Weinstein? Kyle McLaughlin said of seeing the movie at the premiere, quote, I was absolutely gobsmacked. I said, this is horrible, horrible. McLaughlin went on to speculate that the root cause of the film's failure was, quote, maybe the wrong material with the wrong director and the wrong cast. That kind of sounds like everything. A year after the film's release, Esther House, the writer, reflected on the movie and said, quote, Clearly, we made mistakes. Clearly, it was one of the biggest failures of our time. It failed commercially, critically. It failed on videotape. It failed internationally. In retrospect, part of it was that Paul and I were coming off basic, which defied the critics and was a huge success. Maybe there was a certain hubris involved. We can do whatever we want to do, go as far out there as we want. That rape scene was a god-awful mistake. In retrospect, a terrible mistake. End quote. The movie was an unquestionable critical and financial disaster. But one should never let a good crisis go to waste. And so, after the film's release, United Artists started leveraging the movie's failure as an asset 
One theater in Los Angeles and another in New York started hosting midnight screenings on Fridays and Saturday nights. United Artists published new posters, which were printed with select quotes from the worst reviews of the film. And guess what? People showed up. Not a lot, but people started showing up. There was a new approach to promoting the film as an intentionally bad, campy film. There was an extended VIP edition of the DVD release of the movie that included a blindfold, drinking games, shot glasses, a game of pin the pasties on the showgirl. There was also an audio commentary that went by the name The Greatest Movie Ever Made. The DVD release was targeted at adults who were on board with the outrageousness of the movie. And it kind of worked. To this day, Showgirls still gets to play in theaters fairly often. Author Adam Naiman wrote the 128-page book, It Doesn't Suck, colon, Showgirls, where he outlines that the movie is a misunderstood masterpiece. He submits that Showgirls is a better film than Basic Instinct, something that Bo and I will discuss here very shortly. The movie's co-star, Gina Gershon, said of Showgirls, This movie really represents the Aphrodite psyche myth dead on. Aphrodite is the goddess of love and beauty, and she hears about some mortal chick who, all of a sudden, people are treating like a goddess, and this does not sit well with her. So, she sends Cupid down to destroy Psyche. Now, Cupid would kind of be the Kyle MacLachlan character, and Naomi is Psyche, and I'm Aphrodite. And instead of killing Psyche, Cupid recognizes her beauty and potential and falls for her. I have no idea what Gina Gershon is talking about. But what about the film's star, Elizabeth Berkley, better known as Saved by the Bell's Jesse? What does Berkeley think of the film's legacy? Showgirls didn't rocket Berkeley into a successful career as a leading lady. In fact, The First Wives Club is the highest grossing movie in which Elizabeth Berkeley has ever appeared. But nobody talks about that movie when they mention Elizabeth Berkeley. Showgirls is the movie that you think about when you think about Elizabeth Berkeley. Or maybe you think about Saved by the Bell. Berkeley seems to really be on board with the legacy that is Showgirls. In June of 2015, she wrote on her Instagram account, all of you amazing Showgirls fans have turned this film into the beloved cult film that it is. Thank you for loving it the way that you do. It was made with a spirit of fun from the top of my bleach blonde hair to the tip of my glittery toes. Movies like Showgirls are appreciated on different levels by different viewers. Some shook their heads side to side in disgust, others nodded up and down in erotic approval. Showgirls did go on to produce a sequel, Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven. There was an off-off-Broadway musical version of the movie that was produced for the stage. And at the end of the day, Showgirls proved one thing. Sex sells. Well, sort of. And who knows, maybe 20 years from now, there will be a campy, holographic, sing-along midnight screening of Fifty Shades of Grey. And Bo and I will be there on the front row watching as we suffer the symptoms of early onset dementia as we clearly have gotten lost on our way to a good movie. But what about Showgirls? Is the movie so bad it's good? Is gobsmacked the appropriate level of shock one should feel when watching it? Would Thomas Edison be more proud of Fred Otsneeze or the pool sex scene in this movie? Well, there's just one way to find out. Ladies and gentlemen, 
boys and girls over the age of 18, buckle up. It's Showgirls. And welcome to Pick 6 Movies and our final episode of the sexiest season that we have done to date. I am here with the lovely, the beautiful, the sensual, the sexy, the supple, the serene, ever-present, effervescent Mr. Bo Ransdell. I go by Heather now. Uh, <laughs> nobody wants to fuck a Bo Chad. They want to fuck a Heather. <laughs> go ask Dudley Moore. He'll speak otherwise. Fair enough, fair enough. Like, in a weird way, it almost feels we've come full circle. Showgirls, to me, was always going to be the finale of this season because it was the movie, as soon as you mention what mm -hmm. the you wanted this season to be as far as a theme, immediately it was just like, well, this is the movie that we have to talk about the most because it is the most batshit insane thing that Hollywood <laughs> ever jerked off and left in a gross puddle on Sunset Boulevard. It is, it is a rotten rotten movie and i could not be more excited to talk about it let's get this thing started yeah yeah it's only two this movie is over two hours long chad can you believe it the fucking audacity right out of the gate the runtime on this movie this is the movie that cocaine built let's get that out of the way it might as well say on the director's chair cocaine <laughs> Yeah, it's, let's just get started. The use of the word gobsmacked has never been more appropriate than when describing this motion picture. You're right. It is, the whole movie is just bonkers. The movie feels like an extended version of the perfume commercial that Stranger directed. <laughs> Yes. In <laughs> in Boomerang. Uh -huh. Every scene, you're just whiplashing from side to side, and it's just nipples and asses and cocaine and fist fights, and it's, it's crazy. From scene one, Chad, <laughs> we are reminded, are, are presented with, very quickly, the fact that this movie is square on the shoulders of a very lovely young lady who just can't act very well no she cannot she is not a good actress and elizabeth berkeley god bless her goes for it there is no question about that she has given it her all it's just that her all is is not very good and if elizabeth <laughs> berkeley is listening to this which we both know she isn't or ever will sure her performance in this is unbelievable in, but not in a good way i mean like you said she is giving this thing 110 percent yeah and it's just insane. Our movie starts off with our protagonist, Naomi, who, as you said, she's, or excuse me, scratch all that. I, I called her Naomi the whole time. I wrote Right, because that's it's, a it's name, Nomi. not Nomi, which is not a name. <laughs> it is what happens when you misspell Naomi in your script and the cocaine train just does not stop. You're, it's Nomi from then on. Search and replace. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure you want to replace all? Blink. Are you sure? Blink. I bet on Joe Esterhaz's version of Final Draft, uh, my preferred screenwriting software, like it's the cocaine edition where it's like, instead of are you sure, it just says like, go for it, ace. <laughs> 
this is a great idea. So if during the course of our conversation, I accidentally call her Naomi as opposed to Nomi, just you know who I'm talking about, but I'll try to keep it Nomi. So Nomi is hitchhiking her way from Salt Lake City to Anywheresville, USA. And as you said, Nomi has reddish hair and she tosses her thumb up in front of a highway sign that says Las Vegas, 342 miles. And this sign is in front of like a strip mall. There's like an Ace Hardware and a Dairy Queen and, you know, like a Payless Shoes. And it's a really odd place for this highway sign to just be stuck out in front of this rural strip mall. It reminded me of that signpost that the 4077 had on MASH that showed that San Francisco was 5,428 miles this way and Decatur, Illinois was 9,412 miles that way. It is really out of place that you would have such a big green interstate sign inside such of a tiny, small rural town. Sure, but it also is important because it bookends the film. Yeah, the, the this movie is structured with, there is definitely a beginning, there's a middle, and there is an end. I'll give it credit for that. During this beginning scene, Nomi is uh, toting around this beat-up bluish suitcase, which I assumed had human remains in it. We never really find out. It's a lot like Pulp Fiction. You never uh, really know what's in the case. This blue pickup truck stops. And it's being driven by this feathered hair, rural douchebag, kind of this like wannabe Elvis type. And he's driving. We find out later his name is Jeff. And here Jeff tells Nomi that he's headed to Vegas and this is her lucky day. And so she climbs into the truck and this truck has a moonroof and it's got a tiny back seat because, you know, Jeff... He springs for the nicer things in life. And then they take off in the truck. And then Jeff tells Nomi, he's like, hey, you can sit a little bit closer if you want. And then Nomi just whips out this switchblade in a way that can only be described as, I've never opened a switchblade before in my life. <laughs> but immediately she whips out the blade or the blade end of it, you know, like shoots it out, whatever you call that. I don't know. I'm not a real man, Chad. I don't know how to use a knife. But then she just goes, chill, motherfucker. And you're like, oh my God, sure, surely that wasn't the only take they had. <laughs> no, it was the best take that they had. Right. It's a problem. That's the, that's the second thing that occurs to you. And that's where it gets shocking. Jeff gets real indignant and he's kind of like, hey, look, you've been in my truck for less than 60 seconds. And now I'm on the business end of a pretty serious knife. I'm just going to pull over and drop you off on the side of the road from whence I found you. And then Jeff just goes full on Clark Griswold and whips this pickup truck across the highway in front of an oncoming 18 wheeler, almost killing multiple people on the road. And the thing of it is the makers of this film had to hire stunt drivers mm -hmm. for this unnecessary scene. <laughs> there are car stunts in this movie and you can see every penny of the budget up there on the silver screen right in front of him. So <laughs> after he needlessly endangers the lives of people on this highway and they, they're they pulled to the side, Nomi then puts the business end of the switchblade with the blade retracted in her mouth. And my note here is one slip of the thumb, and this is a much shorter and better film about the cost of inattentiveness. Is this how you close <laughs> one of these thingies <laughs> right and because apparently they have both shown that they can be snap of the of the finger psychotic she's <laughs> like 
I guess I guess I'll go with you to Las Vegas or whatever. My name is Nomi and I want to dance. And he's just like, "All right, little lady, let's get you to Las Vegas." Yeehaw! Jeff says to her, "You going to be one of them private escort dancers, you know, what fucks for money?" And Naomi, she still has that switchblade in hand and, you know, she I guess at this point can't remember how to make the silver pokey thingy pop out again. So she just starts punching him with her fist and she's like, you know, cut it out, Jeff. Uh, uh. God, you're such a jerk. I don't even know why we're dating. I didn't know we were going out. You just shut up and drive. God. <laughs> the next scene, it's nighttime and we are in Las Vegas proper. Jeff tells Nomi that he's got an uncle who is a host at the Riviera. So, you know, Jeff's pretty much a legacy in this town. Jeff tells Nomi that to win in Vegas, you got to gamble. And Nomi says with this air of arrogant foreshadowing, I'm gonna win. Yeah, he's like, whatever. Let me talk to my uncle about getting you a job or something. Here, I'll (laughs) I'll take your suitcase. Don't worry about it. And... uh, (laughs) So, and he gives her $10 and is like, hey, while I'm talking to my uncle, you can play the slots and anything you win will split. And is that a deal? And she's like, fine, whatever. And then just snatches the money from him. She's just like, like from jump, she is one of the most unsympathetic main characters I've ever seen in a movie where everything (laughs) she does is with an air of like, God, fine. She is dazzled by the lights and sounds of this casino as she walks through it. She smiles with this wide-eyed wonderment as the stench of cheap cigarette smoke intoxicates her brain. The almost palatable taste of human desperation touches her soul like a lover's fingertips across the flesh. She looks like she is at she is at home. And you and I have both been to Las Vegas on on a couple of occasions not because i wanted to go right nobody is there because they want to be there but except for nomi which is again one of those unsympathetic moments where i was like not only have i never been that crazy about my time in las vegas anyone that reacted this way to the sights and most importantly as you pointed out smells of a casino floor <laughs> is a crazy person. The first time I walked onto a casino floor, I thought, hmm, this is what it's like when a mouse crawls into a bowling shoe. It smells like what would happen if locker rooms were also smoking lounges. Nomi drops this 10 bucks into a slot machine and she just wins instantly. And she's like, this is amazing. It's so easy to win all this money. Cut to five minutes later, Nomi's out of cash and she's beating up a slot machine. She's hustling homeless people (laughs) in the alley. Come on, I need that gamble more (laughs) and then some guy that had to be credited as casino lounge lizard number one (laughs) yeah he walks up to nomi and he says hey you want to make 15 bucks the hard way and then nomi gets all pissed off and she goes looking for jeff and she looks around she's like jeff jeff wait a minute jeff and so she runs back to see where the truck was parked and jeff's beat it and he's taken her suitcase and the human remains that one assumes are inside (laughs) i made I, i made the human remains part up um her suitcase doesn't have human remains in it based on what the movie shows but it totally had human remains in it Mm. nomi then starts beating up a random nearby car in the parking lot and just screaming fuck over and over again right this is where the (laughs) nc-17 came from it's not all the the boobs and badge that you see later like they were like like one one fuck oh pg-13 fuck well that's an r fuck well 
NC-17. Uh, my work is done here. You can just put that up on the marquee, mister. Three Fs and you're out. Mm-hmm. This is to strippers what Scarface was to drug dealers. Mm-hmm. This poor lady rolls up on her car being beaten up by a escaped mental patient. It's Molly. Molly, our nice, our, the, the one character in this movie that has, you know, ethics and a conscience. I thought Molly at one point might be an angel from heaven. I have a theory that Elizabeth Berkeley's character, Nomi, just became emotionally frozen at the age of like nine. <laughs> Developmentally stunted. Because uh, immediately when Molly is like, hey, don't beat up my car, she's like, okay, fine. And then just runs out into traffic. She says, okay, fine. Then Nomi vomits this black tar like substance that is normally found on the Green Mile. It does not exist in the human world. Maybe orcs or, you know, some sort of vampire <laughs> might spew this out of its mouth. So Nomi vomits everywhere and then. Then she runs into oncoming traffic because she's a crazy person. And then Molly just grabs Nomi and pulls her back to safety. And I'm just like, did God send Molly down as her protector to keep her from committing horrible crimes against humanity and even more so herself? Imagine how much better a film this would be if Molly's first line were, why, you almost never lived at all, Nomi. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's a wonderful life. Except at the end of it, she's like, well, I made things worse by being here. <laughs> she just hangs herself in the final frames of the film. And then the world goes on a better place in a parallel universe. That would have been good. Or she sees how terrible life would be if she sticks around and just does it out of spite. <laughs> I'm going to do all of that. You guys can suck it. It turns out that Molly isn't an angel. She's actually just a costumer for a Las Vegas show, but more on that later. Nomi leans into Molly just out of desperation and frustration, and she gets a hug from Molly. And Nomi's mouth has got to just reek of vomit, and Molly's a champ. She just hugs Nomi and, I assume, holds her breath as to not inhale the fumes from Nomi's puke hole. We then cut to some fast food burger joint on the strip where Molly's buying Nomi her favorite meal, a gigantic hamburger and a soda and fries. And Nomi eats terribly in this film, but she's skinny as a rail. I don't know how that works. Um, it's also important to note that this scene is taking place on Halloween night. And we know this because there's Halloween decorations all over the place. And there are actually children in costumes dancing and bouncing down the Las Vegas Strip trick-or-treating. One of them actually sings out the trick-or-treat smell my feet rhyme. Who takes their children to the Las Vegas Strip to trick-or-treat? Look, uh, I'm gonna get in there, maybe play a few hands. <laughs> I know it's Halloween. Look, there's plenty of nice ladies up and down the block. They got all kinds of treats for you kids. Look... Four, maybe five hand tops, okay? I'll be back. Give me an hour, mm, hour and a half. This isn't a costume. This is just one of your shirts. It smells. Hey, do you wear it all the time? No, then it's a fucking costume. Now get your bag and get some candy. If anyone brings you any money, you know what to do. <laughs> Molly asks Nomi a lot of personal questions and Nomi's real evasive in all of her answers. Nomi also dumps out ketchup from a bottle with the same experienced skills that she used when opening a switchblade. I've, I've never seen anyone jerk a ketchup bottle upside down with both hands like she's jerking off a horse or something. Or is a <laughs> nine-year-old Chad? Do you think she's like Robin Williams and Jack? Yeah. Maybe she's just got like, like 
some sort of weird pituitary growth syndrome that she's just this oversized woman with a child inside of her. Yeah, some kind of reverse progeria that makes her a beautiful young woman, but inside she's a child. Yeah, because she, you're right. Like the way that she's thrown around these French fries when Molly is asking her, like, hey, where are you from? And she's like, I'm from all different places. And then just starts throwing fries around. And you're like, holy <laughs> shit, I think that she's got a problem. And then when Molly is like, well, you can stay with me for a while. You're like, what are you doing? You you fed her. You have done all you can for this person. This is a suicidal, vomiting, rude, total stranger that you are allowing to come stay at your home? That you met on the Las Vegas Strip. <laughs> All you know about this person is that, one, she was physically ill. And beating up your car! Suicidal and violent. What better person to have come crash on your couch for a night? Sleep tight. No, no, no. Leave the bedroom door open. That way, if you need extra pillows, you can just come right by my bed and I sleep like the dead, let me tell you. You just go into my bedroom closet there, grab whatever you need. I'm telling you, you could just put one of those pillows right over my face. I'd never wake up for a second. So anyway, sweet dreams. But even before she makes the final offer, Nomi asks Molly, she's like, are you hitting on me? And Molly's like, no. And then Molly asks, Nomi, are you a hooker? And Nomi says, no. So everybody's on the same page. You know, we're not hitting on each other and you're not a hooker. But then I'm thinking, so Molly, at least in the back of her head, thought she might also be a prostitute. I think best case. Yeah. Well, of course, you're on the Sunset Strip. You see somebody vomiting in a parking lot dressed as she was. It's like, oh, well, she's she's a working girl. We cut to a trailer park where uh, Murtock is banging on the door looking for rigs. And wait, um, I'm sorry. Molly is hanging up her laundry outside the trailer. And we get a title card that reads six weeks later, which is kind of important because Let's do the math on this. Our last scene, it was Halloween night. Six weeks later means we are on or around December 15th, okay? From this point till the end of the film, everything we are about to describe takes place in the span of, and I'm being generous here, about four weeks. That feels right, yeah. This is an insanely small window of time for what is about to happen. Yeah, especially considering it took six weeks to get to our starting point, which is just that Molly uh, or that Nomi now has a job dancing at a place called the Cheetah Club or just Mm -hmm. Cheetahs or whatever. And uh, Molly is that's this is where we learn that she's an actual seamstress. And they're real gal pals now. They're chit-chatting and they're fighting over potato chips. And it needs to be noted that in Molly's trailer, all of the walls are covered in posters for someone named Andrew Carver. Molly is gaga for, for Andrew Carver. Right. But there's no real clear indication who or what an Andrew Carver is. Not at all. I'm thinking that maybe he is a Michael Bolton type based on yeah. his flowing Nordic hair. He might be a magician. I thought magician you know? was my first thought. Like, like, it's not until you actually meet the guy, spoilers, when he shows up in the movie that it's like, oh, I love your music. It's like, thank you. Finally, I know what this character does. Did you think that he could possibly be like akin to famed tenor, alto and soprano saxophone master Kenny G? Yeah. I, I Anything. Anything, Chad. Anything was possible. He could have been a bullfighter. How did Kenny G's career happen? I mean, aside from the sultry tones of Songbird. The only way that Kenny G's career makes any sense is that he sold his soul 
to the devil. No one else became a very famous what alto saxophone player or whatever. Right. That you and I are talking about him now. There is no other person. There's Zamfir, master of the pan flute. That's similar. <sighs> a little bit. I mean, Yo-Yo Ma, and I'm sure in certain circles that there are people that are experts at their craft, but not to the point to where you see them on Diet Pepsi commercials or making cameos in movies, and you're like, oh, that's you know Kenny G or whoever else. Real quick, I just wanted to say, I've got a quiz for you. Yes or no? Did the following people sell their souls to the devil? Are you ready? I am. Of course I'm ready. I'm always looking Here we to go. make that deal. Roseanne Barr. No. Jay-Z. N- no. Prince. No. Joe Jackson. Yes. Dan Aykroyd. No. Eminem. No. Grandpa Munster. Yes. Tom Clancy. Yes. Jimmy Page. No. Robert Palmer. Yes. O.J. Simpson. No. Garth Brooks. Yes. Thurston Howell III. Yes. Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> no. Miley Cyrus. Yes. Orville Redenbacher. Yes. Simon Cow. No. Adam Sandler. No. Ray Fiennes. Yes. Larry Fiennes. Yes. Fine Young Cannibals. <laughs> yes. Angelina Jolie. No. Jim Lovell. Yes. Jim Lovell was is the clearest. Yes. John Cougar. Yes. John Cougar Mellencamp. No. John Mellencamp. <laughs> no. Pete Best. No. Robert Wool. Yes. Oprah Winfrey. No. J.K. Rowling. No. Chef Boyardee. <laughs> yes. Rhea Perlman? No. Leonardo DiCaprio? Yes. Jack Nicholson? No. Last one's a trick question. Jack Nicholson is, in fact, the actual devil. Yeah. He was in The Witches of Eastwick as himself. (laughs) I would love it, by the way, if that's how they credited Nicholson in that movie. (laughs) Jack Nicholson as himself. You knew it all along. Molly begs Nomi to come down to her work with her um, to help move the plot of this movie along. So Molly, as you noted, uh, works as a seamstress and a costumer at the Stardust Hotel, where the majority of this movie is going to take place. Molly and Nomi show up backstage at this lavish Las Vegas dancing review style show, and it is just naked breasts and asses, both male and female, everywhere. Mm -hmm. It is a carnival of carnal chaos. One dancer is screaming about how her G-string snapped, and the audience will be able to see her snatch unless Molly helps out. Wait, and then the other girl is like, hey, no, I bet she wants Molly to smell her snatch. And Molly's like, I don't want to smell anybody's snatch. It's a real snatch in this place. And I'm like, holy shit, man. From jump, this movie is just <laughs> like, look, we thought pussy was probably a little too classy a word for the kind of movie that you're about to watch. So it's important that we use the uh, word snatch no less than five times in about 12 seconds. That little paper clip popped up and it was like, hey. I see that you've used the word pussy 22 times in your screenplay already. Would you like to look at the thesaurus? The synonyms for pussy. Snatch. Twat. Cooch. <laughs> it's just like, the first one. Click. Yeah, things clitty. <laughs> it's the pornographic paper club. <laughs> Naomi is awash with wide-eyed wonderment. She looks like Charlie Bucket when he entered the chocolate room of Willy Wonka's factory. Right. Instead of just seeing women who have hit like this this point in their lives where they're just trying to figure shit out and maybe yeah. things are going to get better someday, but not today. And she's no, walking through this place like a pig in <laughs> shit. Oh, these people are so glamorous. Look how mean they are to each other and how their clothes are falling off because they're so cheap. Oh, 
Oh, what a delightful world I've stumbled into. Nomi peeks into the dressing room of Crystal, who's the star of the show. But Nomi only gets to see Crystal's naked ass, all covered in glitter and lotion. And we don't get to see Crystal's face at this point. Just her sparkly ass cheeks. There's also a mention in the background of monkeys being in the act, but we don't get to see any monkeys at this point. But... Stick around. We're going to see some monkeys yeah, later. Yeah, it's a real Chekhov's chimpanzee we've got going on here. <laughs> we we see it on the mantle now. It will fire later. It's definitely going to fire. Whenever you hear monkeys, you're like, I wonder if they're going to shit or if they're going to jerk off. And in this case, you're going to get one of those. I'll tell you, the w- one thing this movie really has going for it is that there's a little giggle about like, hey, the monkey shit on the left side of the stage. Be careful, everybody. <laughs> and that, that warms my heart a little bit. That's somebody paying attention. Molly tells Nomi to run upstairs. You can watch the show with the audience. He's like, really? Can I? And so she goes up to, to this theater. And it is a real old school Vegas style theater. Every table is surrounded by a semicircle booth of seats. And there are tiered levels that go down to the floor. And down on the bottom level, there are four half moon seats that are woven into the set design of the stage. Meaning that the stage comes around the tables and the tables are nested inside of the performers. I want to talk a little bit about the set design for this Las Vegas stage show. May I just intercede briefly to say my note here is that it's a Star Trek set that is invaded by solid gold dancers. Now, please elucidate on my shitty note. My description says, imagine if you tasked a marginally capable eight-year-old with creating a diorama for his dinosaur toys out of Play-Doh. Because there are two volcanoes, there's rock facing, there's rolling orange and red rivers of lava coming down the stage, there's smoke spewing out of everywhere, there are men and women running around partaking in a physical activity that can loosely be defined as, quote, dancing. In the background, the smaller of the two volcanoes explodes and the Stardust proudly presents Miss Crystal Connors, who is played by Gina Gershon. She rises up out of this volcano and she's just throwing around this big toothy grin. And Gina Gershon is a lovely woman, but she's got a big mouth full of teeth. (laughs) She does. She looks like she has like four extra teeth. Who has more teeth, Gina Gershon or Julia Roberts? Oh boy, you're riding in the high country when you're making those calls. I'm gonna say Julia Roberts because I think she's got a wider mouth, so you're seeing more of them. What about Gina Gershon or Steven Tyler? Gina Gershon. Gershon or Tom Cruise? Gershon again. Gershon or Anne Hathaway? Mm, I think that's another case of a wide mouth making it appear like there are more teeth, but I think Gershon actually has more teeth. Gershon or Busey? Mm, See, this is a trick question because it's the same. They have the same number of teeth. Gershon or The Mask? (laughs) Oh, wow. I think it's Gershon. Gershon or a T-Rex? Gershon. Again. All right. You get an A. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Gershon's got a lot of teeth. Yeah, it's like she's got, you know, two extra pair of something or other. Some molars or something. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) It's like she never lost her baby teeth. It's like the adult teeth just showed up and were like, make room out of the way. And I don't mean that's unattractive at all. I think, as you pointed out, Gina Gershon's a very, very pretty woman. What I like about her is she always looks like she is being sarcastic. 
And I think she is next to Kyle MacLachlan in this movie. It is my favorite thing about it because she seems to really be leaning into the drag queen camp of that character. And so when we get to her scenes later on, I do like her quite a bit in this movie. But yeah, back to the scene at hand though, when like Gina Gershon rises from the stage and starts dancing, we get this cut back to Nomi imitating some of the dance in the audience which mm-hmm. is just another plea for help from a crazy person. Like, somebody just needs to order her, like, a basket of chicken nuggets and french fries or something. Keep her hands occupied so they don't flail around like this. When Crystal Connors arises out of this volcano, she is topless with tiny rhinestones encircling each of her nipples. And then there's another tiny rhinestone attached atop each of her erect nipples. Uh-huh. And at this point, all of the dancers on the stage take off their clothes so much so that that you you know, can't see their penises or vaginas, depending if they're men or women. And then all these dancers just kind of hop and skip and jump around the stage from this set that maybe came from the Flintstones movie. I'm not sure. And then it was at this moment in the movie that I was truly embarrassed watching this film. Not that I felt a sense of embarrassment. I felt embarrassment for the actors performing in it. Mm -hmm. I felt embarrassed for the actors that had to sit in the crowd and watch these naked people jump around. I was embarrassed for the crew Mm -hmm. that was filming it i have never been so embarrassed at one moment in my life without personally feeling any sense of embarrassment that is attached to my own behavior you know i'll give you one other example of this chad that you can replicate this feeling any old time especially around halloween (laughs) watch a cakewalk And tell me that you don't feel the same thing where you're like, everyone participating in this isn't ashamed and should be. But about this set and everything, in your introduction, you were talking about how they were saying like, hey, what if we did the old MGM musical style only with a little TNA and it's strippers? And that, to me, implies a grandness of scale and a sophistication of choreography so that these scenes, like the scenes where you're seeing all these people dance, it should be exhilarating and instead it's like watching a cakewalk (laughs) it looks like something from the muppet show (laughs) yeah if you took the dancers off the set and had a guy in a Ghidorah outfit wander on it would be like oh that's Ghidorah on planet x the dancing is all kind of dull and the only thing to see here in terms of the rubbernecking of this scene is just that it's a bunch of sexy people showing their their nethers and their uppers more precisely (laughs) we cut to the lobby of the hotel and the head of the casino mr carlman he's this elderly las vegas type and he's handing champagne out at this media event and mr carlman says we could have gotten anybody to pop out of that volcano naked. We could have gotten LaToya, Suzanne, anybody. And Mr. Carlman is referring to LaToya Jackson and Suzanne Summers. That was your take on this? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, is this, I guess this would be post penthouse LaToya Jackson. Post penthouse pre LaToya Jackson psychic friends network LaToya Jackson. Yeah. In that sweet spot that us LaToya heads. 
Call it. Do you honestly think Suzanne Summers was going to quit her day job of being the sheriff and selling those thigh masters to pop naked out of a volcano? Right. Like, no. What are you talking about? Like, Latoya Jackson, eh, maybe. But Suzanne Summers doesn't strike me as the show my tatas to the world uh, kind of actress. <laughs> but they got Crystal Connors. Who? Shut up. She's a big star. She defines Las Vegas. <laughs> Classy, elegant, sexy. <laughs> I like that Crystal's accent at this point. She's more Norma Desmond when she's out in public, but then behind closed doors, she's kind of this watered-down Reba McIntyre. Yeah. Here, here the movie introduces like eight more characters in rapid fashion. We meet Zach, who's the hotel's entertainment director, who hands Crystal some flowers. Zach is Kyle MacLachlan, and he's kind of Crystal's boyfriend, sort of. I don't know. And then Molly gets called down to Crystal's dressing room. And so she drags her bestest buddy, Nomi, along with her, which is weird. In this private dressing room, Crystal pulls a, and you are, and this is pertaining type of a move. <laughs> and Molly's like, like, hey, I, I make your costumes. And then Crystal says that she's like, hey, darling, my my top's too tight. My breasts are getting all crushed and jiggly in here. You got to do something about this big old bra, darling. And so Crystal then just takes off her top and sits naked, you know, topless with her breast hanging out with Nomi, a total stranger, just quietly standing behind her watching in the background. Uh-huh. And finally, she's like, hey there, little darling, what are you doing here? And Nomi is like, I dance at Cheetahs. And Crystal uh, says, honey, if you're working at Cheetahs, whatever it is, it ain't dancing. And then Nomi says to Crystal, you're shit. Just does a complete manic bipolar, like, I fucking hate you. And then just fucks off. And Molly is like, sorry, my friend's, I guess what you would call insane, I think is the word. Crystal's like, well, that's a real damn shame because I liked her nails, sure did. Darling. Darling. And she gets every sentence with darling. Yeah. Maybe she'd like to do mine sometimes, darling. Won't you ask her about it? And, and Molly's like, all right. But usually when she's like this, she just runs up to uh, the nearest elevator she can find and then goes to a roof and hides in the water tower. Molly runs off to find Nomi and uh, she's like, hey, what the fuck? You can't go into the dressing room of the biggest star of this hotel and scream out, you're shit. <laughs> she it was off. Great. I'm going to get fired. Yeah. And she's like, hey, by the way, you need to go to work too. I'm not going to work. Right. She said I can't dance. I'm not going to go to work. She said I'm not a dancer and fuck her. So Molly's like, you know, Nomi, let's go you know where. She's like, you serious? She's like, yeah, let's go. So they go to this nightclub. The the closest in my life that I ever got to pulling a stunt like this, <laughs> where you just decide not to go to work and, work and fuck off, was back when I was dating my wife. <laughs> and I quit my job at an Outback Steakhouse. And then my now wife, back then she was just my girlfriend, um, we went to a dollar movie theater and we watched Muppets from Space. Oh, all right. It's not the worst of them. It's not quitting and going to a cocaine-fueled rage, but in my own special way, it was me giving it to the man. And by the man, I mean Paul Hogan. Hmm. Naturally, as opposed to Hollywood Hulk Hogan. <laughs> I don't know what any of that has to do with anything. So, but yeah, so like after, you know, Nomi freaks out after not having her nappy or whatever, 
and is like, I'm going to quit my job. They go go to this fucking club where they just dance like mania. It, it's They dance like Roxy did in Basic Instinct. Like, that's the template. Only crank that up a little bit even. It's not even that. It, they're just like spastically throwing their arms around. Maybe, maybe it is dancing. I don't know. But it just seems more like you're having a seizure or a freak out set. Again, if the director of this movie is cocaine... It's like, keep the dance. No, no, harder. <laughs> Molly and Nomi are, are bebopping around. And here we meet James. James comments that Nomi can really dance. And every outfit that Nomi wears in this movie is just struggling to hide her nipples. I don't think that Nomi owns a bra. I, not that I see. Whenever someone, you know, removes her shirt, she's all natural. Well, this guy, James, he comes over to Nomi and he tells her that uh, what she's doing isn't dancing, which... Duh, we just talked about that. But he says, what you're doing is just teasing my dick. And then James admits that Nomi has skills and that, you know, she could be taught to dance. He's a real professor, Henry Eggins, isn't he? And then this type of flattery um, results in James getting straight up kicked in the dick by Nomi while on the dance floor. Right, which has a real domino effect here where mm-hmm. he falls into a dude who then thinks that James was trying to pick a fight. So that fight breaks out and Nomi, because she's a crazy person and a sadist, sees that a fight has broken out that she has caused and kind of gives a little grin like she's a super villain or something mm-hmm. and then anything goes and finally like somebody the bouncers grab her and they're like yeah she started this shit <laughs> and then they just toss her out and immediately she is rightfully taken to jail Where, like, finally something in the movie is happening that I'm like, well, at least something's going on now. Or this makes sense. Right, right. Like, she acted like a maniac and and the world around her behaved as such. And the next morning, Nomi gets bailed out by James, the guy who she violently kicked in the dick less than six hours before. And at this point in the movie, you think James is going to be really important to the plot or character development of this film. Let me tell you right now, he is not at all. In the fan fiction world that we often create for the movies you often that create, we watch, yes, yes. that we, you know, the show, as the show, we do it, <laughs> where... Where James would be sort of the person that's in it for the art of dance, that he would represent the uh, sort of doing it for all the right reasons. And, hey, there's not a lot of money in this, and we're going to have to kind of work and scrape and claw. And then the Stardust stuff would represent the, here's the easy way to fame and fortune, but here's the part of your soul that you sell in order to get that. And it's not really about the love of the dance, it's about the love of money. And that would be the movie that this could have been at this point, you know, and two roads diverged in a yellow wood, Chad. Mm -mm. No, instead, when Nomi sees James, her immediate words are back off, motherfucker. (laughs) It is great, man. Like if she had had the knife, she would have pulled it on him there. She's just awful to him. And he's like, hey, I got you beat me up. Then I got beat up by another guy. Then I lost my job. 
And she's just like, sorry, fuck off. And he's just like, hey, man, will you at least let me get you a cup of coffee? Because a ri- Fuck you! <laughs> you piece of shit! He's like, come on now. All I want to do is just have a cup of coffee. And then Molly shows up because, uh, you know, she's a We got to keep person. this movie moving along. Yeah. Nomi, because she's awful to everyone and everything around her, doesn't even use her own money. Is like, hey, Molly, can I borrow a quarter? And Molly is just a doormat. Sure thing, Nomi. Yeah. Here you go. Here, we're still friends, right? Then Nomi takes Molly's quarter, gives it to James, is like, go buy yourself a cup of coffee, stupid. And then gets in the car and starts sucking on a candy ring, which also feeds into my nine-year-old theory. Because this is the happiest she seems since she woke up, got bailed out of jail by a stranger. You could edit this whole movie, get rid of every single scene that involves James, and the movie's going to be better because it's 20 minutes shorter. And it doesn't impact the plot of this one bit. No, because again, nothing in this movie pays off at all. So it's just a thing that kind of happens and it feels like it ought to mean something, but it doesn't. Nomi is told by her gal pal Molly, um, hey, you got to get to work or you're going to get fired. Uh, Your boss Al called and you're in big trouble. So we come back (laughs) to the Cheetah Strip Club and there's all kinds of bare breasts bopping around from multiple strippers. And then one stripper is worried that she might be pregnant again. Man, this whole scene is so stupid. In addition to, look how big my tits are. I think I'm pregnant. You're pregnant again, whore. Then we have sort of the Sophie Tucker of this place one presumes this big lady mama bazoom who is played by lynn tucci and i just want to point out tucci also played anita demarco on orange is the new black when i saw i was like i know her from somewhere and that's where she is she looks kind of nothing like that but she's good on that show and she's kind of good in this movie she's she reminded me of like the love child of divine and rodney dangerfield right sophie tucker she's got this gimmick that nomi is helping her with where she presses her arms to her sides and her top falls down to show off her tits with a honk sound (laughs) (laughs) for some reason nomi can fonzie it better than anybody by like giving it a tab and hey and that her tits come out better and then there's a new dancer there who introduces herself as penny and then wishmaster shows up (laughs) Yeah, the the owner of the club. The Wishmaster, yes. Tells her, this is where I got the line where she's like, he goes, what is your name? I'm sorry, I'm doing Wishmaster. So what is your name? And and she's like, Penny. And he's like, no, your name is not Penny. It's Heather, because nobody wants to fuck a Penny. And she's just like, okay, I guess. And then here's one of my biggest problems with the scene, Chad, is that. How do you think Penny Marshall felt about that line when she saw this movie? Well, that's probably right. What about Penny Hardaway? Oh, he was upset. Mama Bazoom goes on stage of the Cheetah, which is full of drunk screaming yeah. men. And Mama Bazoom makes her, te- her makes her dress honk, and then it pops down and her, her breast right. flop out. Why are, why are you starting the show with a showstopper, man? That ought to be your punchline. She's just, she's warming up the crowd. She's getting them ready to go. And one guy heckles Mama Bazoom, and it devolves into her telling him that he could couldn't find her vagina due to all of her fat folds and that she would have to piss on him to give him a clue. This 
is where I almost threw up in my mouth the first time watching this movie. Yeah. The first time. Yeah, it'll happen a few times through the watch. That's just going to happen with this one, Chad. You'll be horrified by the notion of humanity at least <laughs> three times during the course of this film. I agree. This is one of those scenes where you're like, what are we even doing in this movie? <laughs> and then we got to up the stakes, Chad, because the Wishmaster is giving Penny all the lab dance rules. And it's just like, you know, hey, uh, you can touch them. They can't touch touch you and it's not okay to come on the dancers and it's like whoa man is that even on the table i guess it i mean there's a reason it's a rule it it has to have uh, happened at least once a little vomit came up my mouth at that point too where he's (laughs) talking about how it's not okay for the guys to come on you Uh, unless they're really paying in which case oh and chad right around the corner from this line Nomi comes strolling through and Wishmaster's like, hey, where you been? And she's like, <laughs> I had my period. Want to check? And she's like, oh, God, will all of this just stop? Then Wishmaster tells Hope Penny, um, he's like, yeah, I want a blowjob later if you want to work here for more than a week. And then there's some other line about her swallowing. It's when you get used to the money you're making, then I'll have you swallow. Oh, just knock all of it off, please misogyny isn't a big enough word for what happens in this movie. Calling this movie misogynistic would be like going to a Ku Klux Klan rally and saying, this is really racist. Yeah, right. Like for all the people that were like, hey, when you guys talked about Smokey and the Bandit, like misogyny wasn't really a thing. Uh, by the way, <laughs> it fucking was. It just, whether or not everyone was culturally cool with it doesn't make it right. But there is zero defense for this piece of shit. They're like, this isn't a like, well, man, it was the times. It's like, no, man, this movie thinks it's being progressive. And that's what makes it all the worse is that it is so wrongheaded (laughs) that this whole speech is, I don't know if it's supposed to be funny. Like, I know he's supposed to represent like, this is the biggest establishment, how gross they are. And it's like, yeah, but you don't have to do that every single scene. This is a movie that just revels in the shittiness of its characters. Outside the Cheetah Lounge, uh, a limousine pulls up with Crystal and Zach and a bunch of other people from the Stardust Hotel in it. Speaking of Stardust, everybody piles out of this limo and they're all comically rubbing their noses to let us know they were doing cocaine inside the limo. They're all just like violently rubbing the tips of their faces like Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan in Night at the Roxbury. See season two. Episode six for more on that one. Crystal enters the strip club with Zach, her pseudo boyfriend, but not before licking Zach's nose, which has a little bit of cocaine upon the tip that he couldn't snort up himself. And as noted earlier, Kyle McLaughlin plays Zach in this movie. I'm not exactly sure how to describe what he looks like in this film. His look appears as though it would be more appropriate in the fifth element as opposed to this movie set on present day planet earth he looks like a 40 year old justin bieber decided to live his life as a 16 year old justin bieber it's very similar to the wardrobe he had when he appeared on SNL Sprockets. yes yes it is very close to that and when he was dieter uh, I think 
so they're watching Nomi dance. And look, I love Kyle McLaughlin. And there is, you would be hard pressed to find a bigger fan of Twin Peaks uh, in the nearby vicinity. And he is brilliant. How did you feel watching this? I think he's kind of fine. I mean, he's he's playing the part. It's just, there's not a lot there. Because he's, he's just one note. How did they not know? I disagree that this movie is intentionally campy and over the top. I think that they really felt like they were making the the heir to Basic Instinct. Yes. Yep. Of a, a sexy, hot, in-your-face, rugged look at the life of dancers in Las Vegas. To, to go in and be like, no, we were just kidding. Bullshit. I think Gina Gershon knew what movie she was in. I don't think anyone else leans into the performance the way she does. I think all those kind of, you know, all right, darling. Like some of the catty lines that she has later on, it's like, man, I think she got it. But everyone else, you're 100% right. Everyone else is playing it for real and not in that winking Leslie Nielsen kind of way. No, you're right. This is a movie that they thought that that's what kind of makes a, a bad movie a great bad movie at times is everyone thought they were making a good movie here. All the crew from the Stardust go into the strip club and Nomi takes the stage and Nomi begins to do a strip tease. And during her dance, she sees Crystal and Zach in the audience. So Nomi really dials up the sexiness. And at one point in this dance, she licks the stripper pole. Oh, wow. Right. Bo, what is worse than licking a stripper pole? I'm glad I asked. Bo, things I want to know, would you rather lick this or a stripper pole? Oh, okay. Yeah, let's do it. Stripper pole or a Walmart shopping cart handle? Oh, man. (laughs) Maybe stripper pole only because of volume. Heavily used bowling shoe sole? Oh, man. Probably stripper pole again. Gently used urinal cake? Definitely stripper pole. A subway turnstile. Maybe the turnstile. Let, less like flesh to flesh contact. The outside of a paper towel dispenser in a public restroom. A paper towel di- dispenser. A gas station pump handle. <laughs> oh man, stripper pole. And lastly, a cat's asshole. Oh man, do I know the cat? Is it my cat? It's your cat. Oh. <laughs> Oh, man. Your cat's a- And lastly, your cat's asshole. <laughs> I mean, I think it's my cat's asshole. I mean, I hate to say that, but that's where we are being stripper poles fucking gross. She already talked about it. she was having her period the last time she was right, there. Right, right. Like, all those other choices were fucking <sighs> astronomically worse. That's terrible. A Walmart shopping cart? Are you kidding me? During this debut striptease, Nomi, she really pinches her nipples quite a bit. And then she sticks her fingers down the front of her panties. And then we also get to see Hope Penny. And it's clear that this is not her first radio. Hope Penny is crawling around like a dog and guys are just braying all over her. And then Crystal tells Zach that she's going to buy Nomi for him. Then James, the uh, guy who Nomi kicked in the dick and that he bailed her out of jail. Well, James shows up at the club because he's a stalker and is arguably maybe the best fit for Nomi because he is a crazy person too. Right. Again, you think that this character is really going to matter. It doesn't. Right. It does until they forget. And then at one point he just shows up for a bit to be like, hey, remember me? 
here's what happened. It's kind of great. Crystal tells Nomi, hey, darling, I'm going to pay you $100 to come over here and strip for Zach. And then she's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And she's like, well, how about $200? And I'll just sit over in a corner and I'll watch. And then Crystal's like, no, I'm not going to dance for you and your boyfriend. She's like, woohoo, you drive a hard bargain. How about $500, darling? And I'll sit over there and watch and I'll do cocaine. And then... Al, or Dreamcatcher as you call him, he rolls over, he's like, hey, get in the back and start dancing. James decides to get in on the voyeurism as well. Yeah, what a cheapskate. He just goes over to the dangling bead doorway to sneak a peek, see what's going on. He shouldn't be over there. But I will say that this movie does deliver on what it's like to be in a strip club and get a lap dance, a very sexy lap dance. I mean, it's kind of crazy and insane. It delivers the same way that Magic Mike did for people who maybe have never been to a male review, just on the flip side of of getting a stripper to perform for you privately. Bo, have you ever had a lap dance? I I have, Chad. Uh, You may not recall this. The first lap dance I ever was party to, and only lap dance, as it turns out, was uh, was courtesy of you and uh, one of the more uncomfortable moments <laughs> of my life. So if you'd like to share that with the crowd. Basically, I didn't want to do it, and it took a bouncer to be like, is, it, is there going to be a problem with you? <laughs> I was like, no, sir. <laughs> I was like, I had just turned 18. I'm not a fan of strip clubs. I work too hard for my money to stick it in the underwear of <laughs> some skank. But uh, no, that was a good evening when we uh, we strong-armed you into getting a lap dance from a, a woman with a notable cesarean scar of her belly. And um, she was best of the worst. Best of the worst. That was one of the more awkward conversations of my entire life. Uh-huh. How are you tonight, ma'am? Shut up. Boy, it gets cold out there tonight, huh? I like this song. Keep your mouth shut. All right. Should I be sweating <laughs> this much, ma'am? Should I? <laughs> it was, yeah, it was bad. The lap dance in this movie is much sexier. Yes. Than the one you got. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in every conceivable way. It ends with Crystal just grinding her crotch on Zach's crotch as though they were having sex. And he comes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He absolutely does, which makes this the third greatest on-screen orgasm from a mainstream theatrically released film. Number two, of course, being when Steve Gutenberg had an orgasm in that swimming pool with that alien in Cocoon. Yeah, that's a good one. And number one, Forrest Gump, when he prematurely ejaculates with his gal pal Jenny. Mm, yeah. Does uh, What about that movie, uh, Happiness? Nobody saw that. Uh, or or spanking the monkey. Again, no. All right. And I'm not counting that guy slinging his semen in... Uh, <laughs> in uh, the Silence, uh, of, Silence the of the Lambs. Migs. Yeah. Migs, yeah. Does not make the top three. Does Zach just walk out of this strip club with a pants with pants full of semen? I like actually when um, Crystal asks him, like, hey, can you stand, darling? Of like, hey, is it going to be cool if you stand up? Is there going to be a big mess? And I like the fact he's like, no, I'm cool. Everybody, Everybody's cool. And Crystal counts out the money uh, for Nomi to degrade her a bit. Backstage, Al takes 200 of the $500 payday. And then we cut to Molly's trailer where somehow James the stalker has found where Nomi lives. That's weird. And he, and James tells Nomi that she's really talented and that she can dance, but what she's doing, it ain't dancing. It's fucking. And he's like, I watched you fuck that guy, Zach last night. And then he says, man, everybody's got AIDS and shit. (laughs) What? (laughs) When did this movie become about like STDs? 
I mean, although the mascot of this movie, let's be honest, if it had one, would just be an STD. It is out of the blue, and then he kind of <laughs> moves on. He doesn't really expand on the idea. It's just like, AIDS, am I right? James says, you got too much talent to be fucking man like that without fucking him. Bitch, you know I'm right. And you're just like, why are you yelling at this woman? Why are you calling her a bitch? Why is everybody so mean? In that scene, let's cut to, I think, a miniature golf course where Nomi meets up with gal pal Molly. And Molly says, I got an A. And I was like, on what? Are you in school? And then Molly says, just four more classes and they're going to have to give me that degree. In what? Right. In seamstressing. So what do two gal pals do when they get good grades and $300 net profit from making a guy come in his pants? They go shopping. I want to go buy something nice for myself because it's finally time I treat myself right instead of the jerks around me. Nomi goes and buys this fancy dress from uh, Versace. And Molly's like, where'd you get that money? And Nomi has, you know, these this $300, which I was thinking, is making $300 at a Las Vegas strip club unheard of? I would think she would be making some pretty fat cash just based on the busyness of the club and the clientele. Is that like, did you see that as an, an unexpected windfall that she received to go spend on a new dress? She's not paying rent or for food. She's probably just not great at math or, you know, like she's probably pulling in like 12, 1300 bucks a night. And Wishmaster <laughs> is just like, yes, let me see. <laughs> this is for you. $75. Wow. I'm those rich. aren't dollars. That's, that's 75 cents. I call those den bucks. They're good here. And for me, and blowjobs. Go ahead, make the wish for a blowjob. It will come true, I promise. And during this scene that they're shopping, there are Christmas decorations all over the place. Again, keep in mind, we are post-December 15th. We're closing in on Christmas Day. You know, we have to be. Just the passage of time is going to get us there. Uh And then Molly and Nomi, they leave the shopping mall and there is a poster for Andrew Carver and Molly just squeals with delight. She's like, he's coming here. She's so excited. Which, who is he again? Is he a prop comic? Is he an impressionist? Maybe he's a racist ventriloquist with puppets that look like old racist white guys and terrorists and a chili pepper with a completely offensive accent that is, you know, degrading to anyone from South America. Funny steak. <laughs> Jeff yeah, Dunham. That guy, well, he does, Chad. Like, he's talking, but it looks like he ain't. And uh, he makes a chili pepper talk like, uh, like a Mexican person. And, and that chili pepper, <laughs> I gotta tell you, Chad, he is, he is one crazy character. Uh, always talking about sneaking across the border and whatnot. Uh, it is a hoot. Prop comic or ventriloquist comic? Which is worse, Chad? You be the judge. Because prop comic is is Gallagher. That's who you're losing there. I'm going prop comic over ventriloquist any day. Prop comic, there can at least be a clever play on words or there's some level of intelligent design to setting up the joke. Most ventriloquist, it's really just puns and self-deprecating humor or in the case of Jeff Dunham, just blatant racism. All right, ventriloquist comic or political singing comic? Like Mark Russell? (laughs) Yeah, like Mark Russell. I'm taking Mark Russell. Oof. I was a big, I, dude, I was a big uh, a Russellite when I was much younger. I, dude, I remember being like under the age of 10 and watching Mark Russell on PBS and just thinking, 
I'll bet when I get older, this is really going to be funny. I was wrong. No, it was never funny, Chad. <laughs> oh, I was a big Russellite. Is that is that what the subreddit is? If I go to r Russellite, <laughs> is that where I find the you and your people? You go to uh, M Russell USA, and then when you go there, there, there's just one word: who with a question mark. It's actually the last AOL chat room. There's one left. It's all all Mark Russell. And he's just in there. Hello. Yeah. Singing little ragtime uh, riffs on Trump's grifting ways. <laughs> and that's why they call it the Mueller rag. You and your Russellites. <laughs> I had no idea. There are only two people uh, that are going to listen to this that are going to find it funny. And it's you and me. And it's right now. <laughs> All right, we'll check the stats. Is this the point where people stop listening? Where it was like, and then they started talking about a musical political comedian for what seemed like a decade. I couldn't be bothered to even Google it. It was that uninteresting. And then if you did Google it and you found it, it somehow got less interesting. There is no more white bread and mayonnaise sandwich comedian than Mark Russell. (laughs) What did we watch? Uh, showgirls. <laughs> and so at the cheetah, Chad, uh, Penny and Nomi are dancing all sexy together. And I think at one point they scissor. I'm not sure. Yes. I think lesbian couple who, when we talked about going back to a trailer and smoking dope earlier, they were the yeah. ones that were like, y'all want to come back to our trailer, get a little high, maybe listen to some Almond Brothers shit, have some, have, have some fun. <laughs> and anyway, they publicly uh, start having a, a very wet kiss and it's one of those things it's like man if i were working with the person i dated and it also involved making out with each other just to turn a buck i i don't think that relationship would last very long chad <laughs> seems like a lot of pressure yeah knowing where you work i think that there's a 100 percent chance that that would not work out <laughs> oh i didn't necessarily mean in my current job but now that i say it i mean worth a shot makes it a, a friendlier workplace in some ways during this scene, um, this guy, Phil, who works at the Stardust, he comes in and he tells uh, Nomi that, hey, there's a spot opening up on the chorus line. You should audition tomorrow. And Nomi says, hey, did Crystal send you? And Phil doesn't really say yes or no. He just ends up with a darling and scampers off. So Nomi goes to the audition. And here we get to meet the producer of the show, Tony Moss. I'm Tony Moss. Yeah. I don't care about anything but the show. I want to see you dance and I want to see your tits. The one thing I don't want to see are any tears of human emotion from any of you dames. Tony Moss. I love it when he's like, you, your tits are too big. Go back to the herd. You, what's your deal? And she's like, "Uh, I auditioned for you before. And uh, you said that my nose was too big. So I got my nose done. He's like, yeah, I see that. Nose looks good. But she is. It's like taxi going down the street with the doors open. Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) this is where in my notes i actually say i like this guy and then he gets to know me he's like and you what's your story and she's like huh i think you're a prick and he's like huh i like to cut your jib also your tits then he kicks everybody off of the chorus line except for three dancers, one of which is Nomi. And then Crystal shows up. She's watching the auditions as well. And then Tony Moss goes up and looks at the three remaining dancers and he says, show me your tits. I got a topless show for Christ's sake. Show me your tits. And then the three women on the stage, they all take off their tops with the reluctance of nudity that 
shouldn't be foreign in this film. It was like watching a fat kid take off his shirt (laughs) when the fickle finger of fate placed the chubbiest of sports participants on the skins team when all he really wanted was to be on the shirts. Boy, that brings back a lot of memories, Shed. (laughs) Going to the public pool today, make sure the shirt ain't white. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Ma'am, ma'am, please put your shirt back on. When uh, he gets to know me, he's like, nice tits. Your nipples always look this way. Are they having some work done? She's like, no, these are my nipples. And he's like, try some ice. It'll get them hard. And they look nice. I want them sticking up, pointing straight up at the ceiling. He says, I'm erect. Why aren't you? Oh, God, this movie's so gross. Just so slimy. Then... She smacks his hands and storms off, and Crystal goes after her. And Nomi asks, hey, did you did you give me this audition? And she's like, well, I guess I did, darling. Well, hey, here's some tissues for you to wipe your little nose, darling. You look awful sad. And then Nomi looks up at her, and she goes, I hate you! And she just runs off. She's not going to get the part and she's being toyed with. But there was this whole thing about her, like, when Nomi is like, why did you do this for me? And she's like, well, maybe I like you. Or maybe I just like how you dance, darling. Here's kind of what I like about this character, because I'm looking for anything to like in this movie. Is I like the fact that she's never completely upfront about what her motives are. But, right, Nomi has a breakdown again and flees the scene (laughs) like a crazy person. And then we see that James is a valet now. Mm-hmm. At the Stardust, I suppose, and walks off his job to have a conversation with this woman storming out of there. James is like, man, you shouldn't be a showgirl. You sh- you're a dancer. Muppets from space is showing around here, girl. Let's go. <laughs> Again, this character ought to be the the representative like of artistic dance and he's nothing in this no, movie but, but like he mouths off to his boss and rightfully is fired for just stopping doing his job in the middle of his shift which i you know i do not have any sympathy for for james here as far as like man you know the man's really coming down on me it's like no man you're just a <laughs> shitty employee who's worked there for clearly like a day or two and when somebody starts doing that shit you're like man take a hike leave your uniform um but so the getting his car and he takes her back to his place which looks like he is a squatter in an abandoned warehouse there's no way he's paying rent for this place no 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 i mean like it's just buckets of water in the corner and that ain't water excuse me where's the bathroom uh it's over in the corner it's the red one for you blue one for boys uh there's a lid for a reason also there's a bag of lime with a scoop in it so Mm. when you finish up how about you just take a little scoop Uh, i made a little rhyme called one poop one scoop is what i say and it helps me remember to do it otherwise it gets a little stinky stinky winky you ever get high on jinkum (laughs) you know who was really into jinkum was uh mark russell (laughs) i'm not a russellite i didn't know that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i'll tell you what go google jacob you will not be disappointed <laughs> he's like hey i wrote <laughs> oh hey girl i wrote a number about you and i do know if he meant the song or the dance Dumb but he puts in a, a cassette tape a single if you will and starts playing some music and they start dancing and it just defaults to her giving him a lap dance then he starts to finger her and then this is where the movie's like hey we haven't been completely disgusting in a solid 45 seconds so 
you know, batten down the hatches. Because again, she's like, hey, you better stop because I'm on my period. You can check. And he does. He fucking does. I'm like, what is happening in this movie? He uh, Then he's like, it's okay, baby. I got towels. Gobsmacked. That's... <laughs> Has any human being ever had this conversation in this way? I challenge you. Have human beings ever discussed this in this way? Oh, I'm sure. Like where somebody was going to, a man is so down for having sex that he's like, I've got towels. Like I can avoid the blood from your menstrual cycle. The sequence from I'm on my period. You can check from that point to I have towels in that order. Those words in that order. You know, man, there's a show on TLC called My 600-Pound Life. Anything's possible. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, real human beings were communicating with one another in this movie. I don't think that's how it would sound. Then, her response to all of this, her capper, the coup de grace, is her saying, You can fuck me when you love me. Later days. Right. Then get out, I guess. And again, it's one of those scenes that when it happens, you're stunned that this is what is passing for a movie. Because this has nothing to do with nothing in the rest of the film. It's genuinely shocking. Maybe we're supposed to infer from this that she's not pregnant. Like it's, you know, show don't tell. Right. It's like the, the 3D chess of this script is that it's actually referring to a subtext that we're too dumb to, to have seen. Per, perhaps, perhaps Joe Esther Haas is, is that good. Or perhaps, as is my theory, he was just zonked on really quality blow. And whereas in Basic Instinct, where there were a lot of characters talking about blow and like, would you like some blow? And maybe we can get some blow. This movie, we got it. We're not right. looking for it. We got blow. Everybody's on blow. Well, they had basic ins- they had basic instinct. <laughs> right. Hence my theory. It is Joe Esterhaz. <laughs> Basically, the subtext of this movie is, don't worry about me, none. I got all the money I need to buy all the cocaine I need. Back at Molly's trailer, there's a message for Nomi from Tony Moss. And surprise, surprise, uh, Nomi got the job as the showgirl at the Stardust. So Nomi goes back to the cheetah to tell Dreamcatcher that she's going to go be a showgirl in the production of Goddess at the Stardust. And Nomi tells everybody that she's out of there and she leaves. And then she goes back over to James's abandoned warehouse squatter compound and she knocks on the door to give him the good news. And then when he shows up, it turns out that James, for some reason, is now fucking Hope Penny from the cheetah. And then Nomi is just like, fuck you, fuck you. And she just runs away. And James is like, oh, baby. Maybe don't you know don't go away mad he he says like this is a misunderstanding by the way we don't owe anything to one another like we're not dating then she gives them the, they you. met four days ago right, right like she's acting like a crazy person sure but the point where this movie just veers into crazy town is or at least on seems to undersell what the character of james should represent because so far he's been maybe not the best guy in the world but not a bad guy and certainly seems to have nomi's interest at heart and then as soon as she leaves uh penny's like i thought you said you wrote that for me and he's like i totally wrote that for you you're the best dancer you know she can't dance and it's like why is this so this character is just another piece of shit Mm -hmm. but don't worry about it because we're not going to see him again for a long long time so and when we do it it doesn't matter matter, right anyway so nomi shows up at the stardust uh in her new dress 
And, you know, having this interview, she says, oh, I really, I got this at Versailles. And they're all like, what did you say? And she, she's like, well, this dress, it's Versailles. I really like Versailles. And they're like, oh, I totally do too. It's, nope, nope, Versailles. It's my favorite. And they're all kind of quietly goofing on her. After they're all laughing at her about the Versailles mishap, she goes into the HR office, which is laid out with Christmas decorations to, to drive that home. Nomi she gets this kind of like a, a quick tour and then she has to start providing personal information from her past and kind of as part of the normal process of getting a job. And she can't remember any of this, like simple things like her social security number or emergency contact. They ask her her birthday and the birthday she gives out is the best bullshit birthday ever. She goes seven, three, 73. <laughs> <laughs> the only worst birthday would be one, two, three, four, which that age doesn't work. And I did the math on it. The closest thing she could have gotten was five, six, seven, eight. And the HR rep is like, ah, okay. She says, have you ever been arrested? And Nomi's like, nope, never been arrested. Not me, ever. Me, Nobi, me, Nomi, no. No, I, Nomi has never been arrested. And you're like, well, clearly she's lying. And then they ask for her social security number. And Nomi's like, yeah, let me get back to you on that one i need to go look that up which you don't get paid without a social security number right immediately it's like okay well let us know when you have it and then you can start working because we have no proof that you are who you say you are right now i wish she had said uh it's one two three four five six seven eight nine because then they would have immediately called her a liar and then the movie would be over like my earlier, you know, switchblade mishap theory, this movie could have been done a couple of times thanks to Nomi's <laughs> own dunderheadedness, and it would have been a better film for it. While uh, the, the assistant director is touring around the stage with her and whatnot, one of the pieces of advice she drops here that I really like is, while you're here, find a job that isn't doing what you're doing, and a man for after. You know, after after this industry's chewed you up and spit you out, you're going to want a man and a different job to land on. Yeah, that's good advice. I, I mean, pretty much for everything, really. I kind of forgot that scene. I don't know what that says about me. I didn't even write that one down. Maybe I should. I'm, I'm paying attention to all the wrong parts of this movie. That's some good advice. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. The stage manager <laughs> seems to have it on lockdown. And then she runs into, what's his name, Phil and, yeah, Phil. and Zach. He's the guy who told her to audition. Right. And then Zach, who is the boyfriend and entertainment director of the Stardust Hotel. And, am- and amateur Justin Bieber impersonator and part-time co-host of Sprockets. <laughs> right. When you say entertainment director, what that means is, in my mind, he's the guy who gets entertainment lined up for the high rollers. That he's like, hey, I'm going to get the- this Japanese businessman a really quality oh, prostitute. I didn't even begin to consider what his job entailed i didn't care yeah well i mean the movie's certainly not going to give me any clues but he's at least decent enough when she's uh, when he's like hey uh, that's a nice dress and she's like it's versace and he's like Whoa, what oh versace no dummy it's pronounced versace and, and when you say it like versace you sound like a damn fool so <laughs> you should stop doing that but his act of kindness i think it he's just paying it back the fact that she made him come in his pants sure yeah he's not he's not the worst well he is kind of the worst of the guys but at this point in the film at least you know like he has this nice line where he says you know what you have great taste and you look beautiful 
And that's he leaves it at that. He's not a complete disgusting individual in this scene. And yet. yet. I mean, we'll get there because everyone in this movie is just the worst except for Molly. But, you know, kind of good for him, right? Naomi goes downstairs and she starts learning the dance routine. And Tony Moss has this redheaded gay assistant Marty. that's con- yeah, con- constantly falling around. And during the scene, he's just screaming at all the dancers and especially Nomi. He's like, get your arm up. Not that up high up. Quit fucking with your hips. You know, who do you think you are? You're not a whore. Come on. And this whole scene where he, he's like, look at this. This is, this is embarrassing. The whole scene, he just reminded me a lot of Dom DeLuise during the finale of Blazing Saddles. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know what? It's, everyone knows. Everyone knows. <laughs> but yeah, it, I, I do like all his, you know, left. No, more left. Down on the floor. Forgive your father. Lose some weight. Nomi gets like one or two hours of rehearsal time. And they're just like, hey, you're going on stage tonight. And so Nomi is all excited about her debut as a showgirl, which let's keep this in mind. In around seven to eight weeks of her being in Las Vegas, she is now appearing as a showgirl in a pretty major production, right? Mm -hmm. At the Stardust, I assume. We are treated in this film, the, the one true highlight of the movie. (laughs) <laughs> this is awesome it is a bunch of chimpanzees and tutus one could only call it a herd of chimpanzees and tutus run through in this red room. vest yeah causing a ruckus run through this room filled with naked women and men and these monkeys are just screaming and going nuts one monkey actually jumps up on a makeup table grabs a tube of lipstick and puts it all <laughs> over its monkey lips <laughs> yeah it is it's some quality chimpanzee but not since steve (laughs) martin in the uh, el paso video have have monkeys been so delightful so yeah it's great they're causing a ruckus and then once the monkeys have rolled through that storm has passed oh there's a cat fight between two of the dancers yeah one of them is a black woman and the other woman is a white woman i only point out their skin color because I don't think that they ever say their characters' names in such a way that I even put it to memory. And that's I, I not know me. Julie is the the white girl with the dreads. Okay, and then the the, the black woman who just she just swears the whole yeah. uh, the whole movie. But if you know that there was the the black dancer and the white dancer, the ones who get into a fight because they're gonna be important here in a couple of minutes. Yeah, eh, all of the ish. all of the dancers reach the stage by way of this large metal staircase that is suitable for falling or pushing someone down. Before these dancers all go up this, you know, rickety metal staircase, it's here that someone shouts out that, "Hey, there's monkey shit up on the stage on the left-hand side. Don't step in the monkey shit." And then one dancer says like, "Does anybody want some cocaine for good luck?" And then the redheaded gay assistant comes over to Nomi with a couple of ice cubes like, "These are for your nipples. Perk up those girls." And Nomi just reluctantly takes them and just starts rubbing her nipples to make them extra hard. And then before hitting the stage, Molly comes by to wish her good luck, and she's like, "I love you, Molly. Without you, none of this would have been possible." And then Molly has to like stare at herself in the mirror for 20 minutes. And try to reconcile that. It's showtime. Nomi runs on stage. There are volcanoes exploding. And man, this movie is bonkers. This is the closest to a well-shot scene in the film. 
uh, I think. Because it it's basically the stage production we've already seen, but this time it's from Nomi's uh, point of view. And at first she's kind of stumbling a little bit in the performance. And then she's kind of great by this movie's standards of dancing. Bo, it was like three or four days ago <laughs> that Nomi yeah. first saw this production. Yeah. She was stumble bumming around downstairs on Monday. Today's Thursday and she's in the damn show. Right, and she misses like one step and then is fine from there on out. <laughs> yeah, right, Chad. This is utter trash, but this is well shot trash at least, which is a nice treat considering the rest of the movie kind of looks like shit. And all of the dancers are running around, spreading their legs, topless. There are gay men pretending to have sex with straight women. There's this, again, let's call it dancing with men and women. They're only wearing G-strings. Their their asses are a-bouncing and their knockers are a-jiggling, season one, episode one. It's the kind of thing when people in like super right-wing churches talk about how western civilization has become rotten with sin and then they showed you this scene and you'd be like you're probably right <laughs> maybe we've gone too far that something like this was allowed to happen I, I gotta tell you i don't agree with that sentiment but i find it hard to argue against it you get me in a room with a, some like you know amish dude and I can I can justify even like you know 120 days of Sodom. I can make an argument for that. Showgirls, <laughs> on the other hand, and this scene in particular, or quite frankly, anytime she says, "No, no, you shouldn't touch my pussy. I'm having my period." Any of those scenes, <laughs> and I'm hard pressed to not just put on the suspenders and help them build a barn because maybe that's that's the right way to go. Nomi gets flowers from Zach, wishing her good luck on her future career. And then after the show, Molly leaves with Nomi and they're both just so happy and they're outside of the stardust and it is full-blown Christmas. We have Christmas carols playing in the background and then Stalker James shows up to apologize. And then he looks at her and he says, look, I got a problem with pussy, but I did write that dance for you, which he's either lying now or he was lying then. And then James just starts verbally assaulting Nomi for not being part of their imaginary relationship mm -hmm. james is a crazy person uh, yeah a hundred percent yeah and then he uh asks her if zach is a pimp because he sees zach's like zach pulls up in his uh fancy red car he says only pimps drive pimp cars and that's a pimp car and zach's a pimp zach then interrupts is just like hey uh shut the fuck up man and then molly shows up and picks up nomi and they leave both of them there mm -hmm. and then that's it Next day, Nomi shows up uh, on the stage to rehearse uh, where she finds Crystal waiting for her. And Crystal is dressed up as though she's on her way to a Shania Twain lookalike contest. Right, like um, if he no Haw decided to have a bondage night. <laughs> That's what uh, it looks like. The grand old Alpry. Nomi says, <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing here? And Crystal says, oh, me, darling, I'm just snorting cocaine, darling. It's what I do, darling. <laughs> she says in particular, which would ask, what are you doing? Her response is, some of the finest cocaine in the world, darling. And that is just Joe Esteros clickety-clacking it up. <laughs> of like, It's probably how he started his writing day at 1 p.m. What am I doing? The finest motherfucking cocaine in the world. Now let's get to some titty writing. Somehow his to-do list got mixed up into the screenplay. 
Right. Call Gary I, about the finest cocaine in the world. <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, let me white out Call Gary. I think that Crystal keeps cocaine inside of a tiny ring on her finger. That's a special kind of awesome. Well, it's committing to the lifestyle. It's like, I can't ever be in a place where there's not cocaine. I don't know what would be better, to have a ring that has cocaine in it or to have a ring that contains poison. Like where you turn it and you drop it into the goblet so that when somebody drinks it, they die. Well, it, it depends on is your motivation murder and revenge or is your motivation just having a little fun, Chad? My motivation is writing the sequel to Showgirls. Then, so I guess it's the form. That's right. I think you know the answer to that. Just let's <laughs> toot it up. Showgirls 3. Crystal's going to work with Nomi on her turns, but before they start rehearsing, they go to Spago to get something to eat. And during this scene, we get a realization that these two characters are one and the same. It's kind of like a De Niro and Pacino in Heat. It's a real head-to-head of acting heavyweight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the scene I was thinking of when I watched this. It's Gina Gershon saying, like, I think we got off on the wrong foot, darling. And their method of bonding... Speaking of sparkling dialogue, a la Michael Mann and Heat, is uh, Gershon saying, um, you know, I didn't always uh, have money to eat fancy food like this. I, in fact, I'll tell you what, I used to eat dog food. You ate dog food? I ate dog food. I ate dog chow in particular. You know the, that brand, that popular dog brand. I do. Dog chow. Yes. Yes. It cleans your teeth while you eat. I know that. I didn't have to buy toothpaste. I ate it for the coat, but I know exactly what you mean, darling. And I'll tell you another thing. I liked how it tasted. I know. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Do you like day drinking? I love day drinking. Darling, all I do is day drink. That's why I do so much cocaine. By the way, you want to do some cocaine, darling? And then Gina Gershon says, like, darling, you've got nice tits. I like nice tits. Do you like nice tits? I love nice tits. And you like nice tits. You're like an older cocaine-addicted version of me. But this love affair is over before it starts. Because there's a little bit of, like, Crystal saying, like, hey, where do you like nice tits? And maybe maybe you want me to suck on your nice tits, darling. And there's a little hint of that. And then and Crystal is like, darling, it's important that you know that we're all whores. And Nomi is like, what? <laughs> I'll never be like you. And then flicks champagne at Crystal, which uh, this is on the heels of Crystal earlier baptizing Nomi with the champagne. And Jesus Christ, it's like putting a squirt gun, people. Like, drink it or splash it around, one or the other. Crystal ends this conversation essentially saying, like, you and me, darling, we're exactly alike. We're both whores, darling. And then they leave to go back to do their, their rehearsing. And then some cowboys or something show up to ask for an autograph. And then they split from wherever they're having lunch. And they go back to do what Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey coined as dirty dancing. Except here, Crystal just rips off Naomi's top while they're dancing and then she plays with her nipples and she says you see darling you are a whore darling and then nomi calls crystal a bitch and just runs off the stage you can't undersell like how much nomi is into it up until see you are a whore darling and then she flips and says like, bitch and then runs out <laughs> <laughs> and then the next scene is take your kids to work night at the Stardust. 
First, we see that the monkey wranglers have figured out that a cage will keep the monkeys from getting into the lipstick. And so the chimps are now rolling around in a cage, which that was kind of sad. And as you noted, there are two children, a girl age 10-ish and her younger brother age 7-ish. There are male and females just naked everywhere in this backstage area. And the mother of these two kids is the white woman who had the fight with the black woman earlier. The daughter of this woman, she's holding this stuffed bear, which makes her look even more like a young child. And then these two kids start asking, can we see the monkeys? Can we see the monkeys? Can we see the monkeys? <laughs> which is a, re- which look, it's a reasonable question because that's what was coming out of my mouth when I'm watching this film. Right, but you just made him sound very bad seed about it. Like, mother, where are the monkeys? We were promised monkeys, mother. You know what we're like when we get angry, mother. Where are the monkeys? I think they were asking because they just wanted to get away from all of the full frontal nudity. Can we go see the monkeys, please? Please. I don't want to see any more breasts and ding-dings. The last time we were here and we saw the monkeys, the monkeys threw poo and it went in my eyes and I couldn't see for two days. And I would rather have that happen again. Because I don't know if you know this, mommy, but everything I see in here, it makes me sad. You know, man, just to put a pause on the narrative of this film. Oh, please. Good luck finding one. When they were making this movie, they auditioned and hired two child actors and put them in this scene and they surrounded them with naked women and some naked men, you know, for authenticity. And there was a cage full of live monkeys rolling around and a director, which may or may not have been Paul Verhoeven on this particular day, screamed out action. In an attempt to make movie magic, this has got to be scarring for these child actors to have participated in this, right? I think probably the male child actor, if he was smart, took a lot of onset pictures, if you know what I mean, and became the the coolest kid in his middle school. Whereas the girl, uh, I'm sure, had a number of questions about her Hollywood mom, about why she had to live uh, vicariously through her in such a way that it made her just rife with body image uh, issues the rest of her fucking life. Yeah, I think it's irresponsible, to your point, Chad. Uh, to have these children in a place that is nothing but tits, wang, and pussy <laughs> with a, a, just a splash of chimpanzee thrown in for good measure. I have not made a list of all of the shocking things in this film, but just it's so funny that you can just gloss over this level of clearly illegal exposure of children to real-life adult situations. If what had happened in this movie happened at the local YMCA, the place would be (laughs) shut down and the investigations would be endless. Back in the narrative of our movie, these two kids are repeating over and over, can we see the monkeys? Can we see the monkeys? And then the black dancer who fought with the white dancer, the mom, she screams out, get those fucking kids out of here. And then it's record scratch. And the little girl says, Mom, she said the F word. And then this little girl starts crying and just falls into the exposed naked breasts of her mother. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that therapy exists. It's a reason. There's a reason it's a thriving industry. And it's because things like this happen to people. (laughs) 
Phil comes over and offers Nomi $1,000 to appear at a boat show. And Nomi says, okay. But uh, Molly stops by and she says, don't do it. I've heard bad things happen. She says that, but while Crystal is comically interrupting, where Molly is like, Nomi, about the boat show. Come on, darling. I need you to fix my G-string. There's something I need to tell you. I just need to get the words out. Darling, get in here. You got to do some seamstressing. Nomi, uh, it won't take me long to tell you at all. I just need to tell you about this boat show. Darling, get in here. Uh, Don't do it. And that's it. (laughs) It's like, oh man, none of this pays off. At the boat show, Nomi is dancing up on a, you know, like a parked boat. And then Phil comes over with uh, an Asian man. And it turns out that the expectation is that they're going to go hear someone named Caesar sing. And they're going to have lobster. And then all of them will go and have sex with each other, thus making Nomi a prostitute. And Nomi's all offended and she storms off. So then Nomi goes back to the Stardust where she barges in on Zach, who is canoodling with Crystal in Crystal's dressing room. And Nomi demands that Zach and she talk about Phil's thousand dollar boat show prostitute offer. So they go up to the volcano stage and Zach is like, what? He did what? Phil? My Phil? I'll take care of this. And he pulls out this giant flip phone and he's like, get me Phil. Phil, get your ass up stage. Tell him I'm on the stage. Tell him to get over here. Tell him I, Zach said to get over here. Phil comes out and he's like, yeah, what is it, Mr. Zach? What's going on? Phil, did you want her to have sex with an Asian man for money? It's nothing like that, Zachy. It's just a misunderstanding. What you think? Phil, is that what happened? Yeah, that's what, that's what happened. That's what happened, boys. Zach says, Phil, apologize to this lady for presuming that she's a whore. Oh, sorry, lady. I would, you know, it was just a misunderstanding. Phil, you get the hell out of here and I don't ever want to see your face again. Uh, get out of here, Phil. All right. Sorry, lady. It's okay. Misunderstandings happen. I still want my thousand dollars. As soon as he's like, we're cool, right, baby? And she's like, that was the greatest thing I've ever seen. Nobody's ever stuck up for me before. And he's like, that's right. You can always count on me, Zach, your pal. And as soon as she leaves the stage, he's like, Hey, Phil, it's uh, Zach again. Sorry about that, man. You know, bitches, right? You dumb motherfucker. Of course I was pulling your cock. (laughs) Hey, I guess we know she don't put out for Asians, right? (laughs) Next time off of 2000, we'll see how it goes. Nomi goes down to Crystal's dressing room where we get to see Crystal, who's wearing this fuzzy purple nightgown, and she's just standing on one leg while she shaves the other leg that is propped up on a chair. What is a better pick six movie shaving scene? This scene of her shaving her leg in comedic fashion or when Bram Stoker's Dracula shaved Ted Theodore Logan. Season three, episode two. Uh, I've got to go with the Dark Horse candidate, the cover of the uh, VHS for uh, My Mother is a Werewolf. <laughs> that is a pretty good uh-huh. one. It, that doesn't work because she's a werewolf. The hair's just going to grow uh, back. <laughs> you know what? She'll find that out the hard I'll way. I'll tell you. That's why it's a it's a kooky adventure that they have in that movie. The, by the way, the phrase kooky adventure brought to you by Paul Schaefer. All of the dancers rush upstairs to go put on the show. And this time the set, for some reason, is like this Xanadu dance number with ball gowns and naked breasts and there's fake candelabras. And then during the scene where everyone is spinning around and twirling, the white mom who got into the fight, she drops five or six marbles on the stage near the feet of... Of the male dancer who is holding up the black woman who told her kid to shut the fuck up. And the guy who's holding up the, the black female dancer, he slips on the marbles and he drops the black female dancer in slow motion. 
when she hits the ground, it's a real Nancy Kerrigan. Why? Why me? Why? Right, and somebody says, I think her knee is broken, which is not a real thing. Which, <laughs> as weird as that is, I think her knee is broken. You're like, oh, all right, so somebody in... ADR was having a goof or something. <laughs> and then the guy who in Scrooge said, you can't even see them nipples, uh-huh. rolls through and is like, hey, did you hear the news? Her knee is broken. <laughs> it could be three months before she's back. And I was like, wait a second, what doctor did she go to that confirmed the bogus theory that a knee was somehow broken? Oh, man, I loved it all. Thank you, doctor. Oh, I'm not a doctor. You know what is a real thing? <laughs> broken heart well sure that's what i had at the end of this movie and uh (laughs) at the beginning and in every moment in between when this tumble goes down nomi has been witness to the whole thing a to z when the stagehand says hey it was these marbles what made that guy slip and uh break that woman's knee my first thought was like well is molly gonna be to blame because if they fell off a costume as one person conjectures it turns out that the black female dancer she's out of the picture and it turns out that she is the understudy for crystal so nomi is like hey maybe there's an opportunity for me to be the understudy but then one of the choreographers comes over to nomi and says hey nomi your mom's upstairs and the look on her face is like what my mom oh man she's kind of freaked out so she goes upstairs to see what's going on and who is it it's mama bazoom and she's standing on the stage and i did like that she's telling her raucous nasty jokes to this empty house theater you know like it's her one and only time she's ever going to play the big room and that made me laugh yeah yeah that's all right i'm looking for anything to enjoy uh, about this movie sure the, like wishmaster is giving her this like uh you you're you were good kid real good when you were back at the cheetah club and grinding on the pole and whatnot but in this scene it's almost touching that they're there to see her that one of their own has made it to the big time you know that they've done good that they escaped the you know kind of the trappings of this awful dingy skanky nightclub and the two of them seem to be somewhat proud of her success that she has accomplished in the 72 hours since she quit her last job (laughs) right they forgot that she actually had quit and then they were like, hey, where is she, by the way? They were like, don't you remember she quit on Friday? It's like, I don't. Oh. I was so high on cocaine. Why would I remember also, that? Also, she didn't work on Saturday, so really she's only missed one day. It is arguably a sweet moment as Al, you know, tells her... You know that I'm, I'm, I'm that he's kind of proud of her. As the two of them <laughs> walk away, as if to say this will be their final time seeing Nomi, Al turns around and uh, Al says, uh, "Bo, you're gonna have to say it." He says, "Chad, must be weird not having someone come on you, huh?" That fucking happens in this movie. <laughs> What is wrong with you, showgirls, the movie? Could you please just try to go 60 seconds without being skin-crawlingly gross? It feels like they're going out of their way to just say and do the most offensive thing in any conceivable situation. All right, so, because we're not nearly done, Chad. This isn't as bad as the movie gets. This movie gets worse as it goes. All right, so after that insanity, Zach then takes Nomi out for a ride in his fancy schmancy sports car and asks her, like, well, hey, you're going to have to give me directions to your place. And she's like, how about you just take me back to yours? 
Because the movie has to get just the worst again. At his house, he pours them champagne, and he's like, I don't always have crystal, but I always have champagne. And she's like, oh my god, you're so fancy. Then it turns out he's got on a light switch neon palm tree signs that are vaguely silhouettes of the actual palm trees (laughs) behind his house. We haven't seen this type of neon palm tree since we were, you know, atop exquisite in Tampa Bay, Florida. Nomi points out that there's a picture of Zach and Andrew Carver together. And I just want to say, if you're not really paying attention to this movie, if you're just halfway waiting for nudity to show up, it's very easy to miss all of the Andrew Carver comings and goings in this film. He is much like the shark in Jaws, often referenced, never directly seen. And has much the same impact. She sees that picture and then is like, hey, you've got a pool. You know what I like to do? And then she gets naked and just jumps in the pool. And my favorite shot of the movie, I think, is Zach strolling into the frame and has just Mm -hmm. has waited for no more invitation and has gotten naked as well. And just his naked ass roaming in a frame with a champagne in his hand. And it's just like, right. oh, wait, that's the kind of party we're having? Fucking A, let's do it. Off with the pants, let's go. So he jumps in the pool with the bottle of champagne, and he's pouring the champagne on her and, like, licking the champagne off her tits. And then she goes down on him underwater and then swims under the fountain, and then they they follow, or he, uh, he follows her. And then we have the actual sex scene in the pool. I don't even, I don't know how to properly describe this, Chad, other than to say... The power of Christ compels her in this scene. <laughs> Having watched this movie twice. Uh-huh. I have it on Blu-ray now. Good for you. <laughs> no. no. She, she, when she has sex with him in the pool, she has sex with him here the same way that she did her lap dance for him. The way that she like just flails around like she's having a seizure. This scene in this movie for me was the most memorable scene in the film. The way that the leg crossing scene was in Basic Instinct. I think there are other scenes in this movie that I should have remembered more, but I either blocked them out or was just so thunderstruck with how ridiculously stupid this sex scene is. It's it's crazy. I mean, it's her smacking the water with her back. and It's like she's on a mechanical bull. It looks painful. Like The fact that they're both not bruised beyond all recognition is astounding and proves that this was all fake. And Zach doesn't look like he's having a good time. It looks like he's getting ready to go down 9 He's hanging on for dear life, man. I mean, he's just hoping that he survives this thing with his dick intact. Like, it could come off at any time the way she's moving. <laughs> the next morning, after the fuck it is all done with and they both collapsed together and, and made their way to bed, she wakes up and she calls a cab. And he's like, hey, you want to spend the day here in bed and not in the pool? Because, holy shit. (laughs) It's filled with blood, semen, feces, tears, cocaine, champagne. And then he's like, hey, by the way, there's an audition for an understudy for Crystal at noon. And Nomi then does some blow, which is the first time we I think we've seen her in the movie even take cocaine. Yeah, she's refused it. And I think with her doing her first bump here, this is her transformation into becoming Crystal. So Zach is like, hey, am I going to see you again? And she's like, I don't know, maybe. Shut up. Let me have some more of your cocaine. (laughs) Also, a little bit more. Now, goodbye. Maybe someday. 
you're just like, fine, lady, just get out of here. I got to change the locks now. <laughs> Maybe move. So she goes home and is telling Molly about, like, guess where I was last night? I was fucking Zach, and it was great. And oh my God, here are some potato chips. And Molly is like, hey, are you high? And she's like, <laughs> I mean, so what if I am? Oh my God, potato chips, do you want some? And Molly is like, hey, whatever whatever it is in this scenario, don't get caught up in it, all right? <laughs> Come back to the stardust. Tony Moss is there with Zach and the redheaded gay assistant, and Crystal's there and the choreographer. And they're all judging three women that are auditioning to be Crystal's understudy. And Crystal says, it doesn't matter who you pick, because I haven't missed a show in eight years, darling. Which I was thinking, didn't they just introduce her like two weeks ago as the new star of this show? They could have had LaToya Jackson or Suzanne Summers, but they got Crystal. I guess the idea is that in a series of shows, maybe. Well, eight years running and she's now been the star for two weeks. Right. Zach turns to Phil and he's like, hey, go dig up some shit on Nomi. I think she's got a sordid past. And then Crystal tells Zach, she's like, hey, darling, I know that you fucked Nomi. And Zach says, well, I think that uh, you're just jealous, Crystal, because I got to fuck Nomi before you did. And then Crystal says, oh, shucks. You know how I am, darling. I always get upset when other people fuck girls before I get to, darling. I love cocaine <laughs> and, I, and I love f- fucking young dancers, darling. And it's at this point that the movie really reintroduces the idea of competitive fucking amongst heterosexual men and lesbian and or bisexual women. Good for you, Joe Esterhouse. Oh, man. Well, recycling was really a big thing in the late 90s. I wish that the character of Crystal was even more overblown in this scene. I think the best moments really kind of come later. But all of this cattiness feels like it still ought to have more of a payoff. And and that's kind of the story for the whole movie. And even this subtle lesbian storyline of uh, will they, won't they, I guess... I mean, is that where we're headed with this whole thing? Is that maybe they're gonna do it at some point? Not really. Crystal con- goes up and confronts Naomi and says, Well, did you fuck him because you wanted to fuck him, darling? Or did you fuck him because you wanted the spot in, uh, in the show, darling? You know me says like, well, is that what you did, Crystal? Did you fuck him to get this spot? And, and then Nomi makes some comment about Crystal looking old and then she pinches uh, Crystal on the cheeks. Nobody likes getting pinched on the cheeks. That's the worst. This is where it gets kind of fun where Crystal's like, Nomi, you don't want to piss me off. And Nomi's line here is, wow, I never noticed how much older you look when you get angry. Which is kind of a fun line. That's where Zach is like, hey, we're going to get some uh, glossies of your face and some dinner later over some lobster. How about that? And also, I want to know about your your history. And and I I have a note here where it was like, well, so is this what the movie is going to be about is like this revelation of who she was? So Zach comes in and he tells Nomi, hey, good news, you're the understudy. And Nomi's really happy until Zach says, hey, let's celebrate and we'll go hear Caesar sing and we'll get some lobster, which is a repeat of what Phil said earlier when the whole have sex with this Asian guy thing came up. So it's now that we know that Zach is a douchebag and Nomi knows that Zach is a douchebag. Plus the music cues tell us that as well. And I do think that this is where the movie is beginning to turn and we're going to start to get the revelation of, Nomi's sordid past it's going to catch up with her sordid future and everything's really going to fall apart 
one would presume. But again, that was my question of like, is that what the the central conflict of this movie is? It's the old questions that you ask yourself when you're watching any movie that's supposed to be a story about things where you're like, what's going on? Who is that guy? When is this going to end? Right. And what is the point of this? Like, what is the thing I should be investing in? What, what is the thing I should care about? And I don't think this movie ever establishes any of that. It's like, no, because you start looking at how close you are to the end of this movie at this point. And you're like, I don't know what's happening. If at any point in this film, someone just turned it off, you would be like, Okay. Like there, there are no questions that would linger of like, well, what happened to them? Did they ever, you know, get to resolve this conflict? Who was the person who was really making all of this happen? None of that. Well, all right. Because I think that's in knowing where this movie ends up. And that makes as much sense as anything. After we get the uh, scene where Zach is like, hey, we need to figure out what Nomi's backstory is. There, We see her at a, her dressing table backstage, and there's a flyer for James's dance called Private Dancer TM. Uh, forget about that Tina Turner thing. How did this flyer end up there? Did James sneak in and leave it for her? You gotta think so, right? He's a creep. He right. He, he's a weirdo. But you know, in about four days, he will have given up on all of this, so it doesn't matter. So Nomi decides she's going to go make up with Crystal, I guess, and says she didn't know about the understudy audition until after she fucked Zach violently in the swimming pool. Right. That's why they're both bruised and and their faces are all swollen and bumpy and there then there's this weird moment of sexual tension between them you know where they're like hey we could be friends and nomi is like holding her hand and saying like hey do you want me to do your nails like crystal is like hey your nails look good and she's like yeah do you still want me to do yours i'd still like to do them and then this is another of those moments i really like where crystal's like you know what on second thought i don't want you doing my nails i'm getting a little too old for that hoary look Darling. Darling. She's like, you, you're a whore. You're a whore, darling. You're a whore. Again, I mean, is that supposed to be the big reveal of this? No, I, I don't. This movie doesn't have point or purpose. It, it, it doesn't matter. So the very next scene, the very next shot even, is Nomi sitting on the edge of a building and she's eating like a burger and she's got... It looks like it's like a heart. Yeah, it's a Hardee's commercial. It's a skinny. It's a skinny white woman eating a burger the size of her foot. Is this supposed to, in some way, represent like she's getting back to her roots or something? Or she's just hungry. Like, why are we taking valuable time in a two-hour-plus movie to watch her eat a hamburger on a roof with no context? I, I can't answer that. There's so many things about this movie that are that are head-scratchingly. Let's just move on. Yeah, all right, let's keep going, because there's no answer. Nomi goes to a club who gives a shit. The see Crave James Club. Do- James is doing his special dance number, and he's up there with Hope Penny, and the audience just boos him off the stage. And then Nomi goes over to James, and she says, you guys are really good, despite you know the fact that everybody here was booing you until you left in shame. And then Hope Penny says, look at this, I've got a wedding ring. And it turns out that she's pregnant, and James is you know going to make an honest woman out of Hope Penny. And are we are we supposed to care about any of this? Because we don't. And during their conversation, James is like, well, shit happens. And then Nomi is like, well, nice seeing you. Glad you could stop by the movie for a while. Bye-bye. Right. Maybe you taught me a lesson or something. 
Who knows? See you later. Again, it's kind of stunning when you see a movie like this, like a real honest-to-goodness movie that was released in actual theaters, Chad, where it's just like, hey, this whole storyline, we're done now. Bye-bye. Nomi goes back to her makeup table to find an envelope that says you are not going to be the understudy for goddess. (laughs) And naturally, she takes it well. She rushes upstairs and she confronts Zach. And she's like, what is this bullshit? Bullshit. And Zach's like, hey, look, Crystal's a big star. And she was the one who made the call. So then Nomi runs downstairs to find Crystal sitting on Nomi's uh, makeup station. And she's just holding court with Mm -hmm. all the other dancers. And she says, you know, I thought about it, darling. Maybe you can do my nails now, darling. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, this is probably my favorite thing in the whole movie. Except, well, that monkey putting lipstick on was pretty fucking awesome (laughs) you're right you're right the thing that actually had to do with what the movie was about my favorite thing was this moment where yeah you want to do my nails now it's a real good dig we cut back to the stage and somehow the show is now this leather biker outfit with like real motorcycles driving around on steel beams. There are men and women again in G-strings with their breasts and nipples exposed. There's nothing sexy about this. It is a bunch of homosexual men riding around on top of women who are getting their nipples like pretend licked. Like the gay guys are like flicking their tongues, but you can tell they're like, I am not licking this woman's sweaty, bedazzled nipples. Yeah, they don't pay me enough for that. I'll lick a stripper pole instead. Thank you. (laughs) During this scene, Naomi and Crystal, they take turns dry humping and bending each other over to show dominance, you know, during their dance routine. And they're slapping each other and they're making their nipples bounce off one another. And then as they leave, Crystal calls Nomi her slave girl. And she drags her along and they make their way over to the extra tall metal staircase. And as they're trot, trot, trotting down for a costume change, it is here that Nomi just violently slams her hands into Crystal's back. And Crystal falls, tits over taint, down these stairs and just splats on the the bottom of the cement floor. Uh Uh-huh. It's pretty good. And there's this quick shot where Molly gives Nomi a look like, you just fucking push her down the stairs <laughs> but julie uh who was you know in the the understudy audition it, the white woman who fought with the black woman right she's yeah. like i saw everything that happened and she slipped and nomi's like yeah what she said she slipped see and it's all because nomi didn't rat out her for dropping the marbles that they got each other's back right they they have this little cabal of felonious behavior and uh crystal is then hauled off in an ambulance because i think both knees are broken for her she's gonna need a double kneeectomy she's gonna be out probably gosh anywhere from two to six hours Based on my diagnosis. It's a serious, serious injury, Chad. And Nomi has this wicked little smile as she's being taken off. So she's kind of, she has become what she beheld, Chad. She has become uh, this evil stripper. So that's what the movie is about. Totally. It is about her uh, transformation from from heroine to villain. 
Got it. You know what? I cannot wait to read your dissertation on this. <laughs> Back in the offices of the Stardust, we see the head of the hotel or casino, Mr. Carlman. He's the old white guy from the beginning, and he's demanding the show must go on. And Zach and Tony Moss and Phil and the redheaded gay assistant, they're all there discussing their options. And as they're talking, somebody says, maybe we could bring in Janet Jackson or Paula Abdul to replace Crystal. Oh, right. At the time of this film's release, it was inconceivable that Janet Jackson would take part in a show where her breast would be so prominently displayed for all the world to see. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But future history proved that to be wrong. More people probably saw Janet Jackson's single nude breast than all of the breasts in this movie combined. Yeah, that's accurate. I would say that's accurate. Those suggestions are hysterical. I mean, LaToya Jackson, maybe you got something, but Janet Jackson and Paula Abdul are honest-to-goodness stars and are not (laughs) going to be shaking their jubilees for this shitty Las Vegas casino. Maybe Ray Don Chong. Maybe more like a Tawny Catan, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. These two names are, are more akin to like Betty White, you know, like, like that's, this is never going to happen. Right. Right. How about Jane Fonda? Paula Abdul would have your casino burned to the ground if you asked her <laughs> at this point. Like MC Scat Cat would have the matches and gasoline. Zach tells Mr. Carlman, hey, look, we do what we always do in Vegas. We're going to gamble. And so they let Nomi be the star. So cut to Nomi popping out of the volcano with sequins around her nipples with a little tiny one on top, just like at the beginning. And then we get a a repeat scene of Mr. Carlman uh, singing Nomi's praises and he's handing out champagne, just like we saw at the beginning with Crystal. And there are flowers that are being handed out. And so we see that Nomi has become Crystal in the world of Hollywood would showgirl stardom right and now it is time for the fall chad surely that's how this movie will end nomi has been in vegas what 60 days she pulled in with jeff about four and a half hours ago and And she is now a headliner in a show at a major hotel billboards and everything are up with nomi malone or whatever goddess and so Zach then says, like, hey, um, we're going to go to this party with Andrew Carville. Like, we rented out these bungalows. It turns out, oh, he is, in fact, a singer. So we we learned this now. She's like, I don't have anything to wear. And Zach uh, is like, hey, well, I just happen to have this gift. It's a dress for you. It's going to be great. And she, uh, Nomi, wants Molly to go to the party. Yeah, Molly's pissed off. She's like, you push Crystal down the stairs. <laughs> right. You are a bad person yes she rightfully is telling her friend what you are doing is horrifying behavior and you should stop and you need to at least acknowledge what you've done and nomi completely denies having pushed the uh push crystal at all molly says no i i saw julie and julie had her back turned and could not have seen what happened and that i understand that this is quid pro quo for nomi not dropping a dime on Julie about the rhinestones. And anyway... Yeah, she lies to her friend. 
And she's right. like, nah, it's all bullshit. Uh, I didn't push her. You don't know anything. Hey, you need to come to this party because the guy who you literally have 20 posters up in your trailer of will be at this party tonight that's being thrown in my honor. You have to have to have to show up. And Molly says, no, I am not going to come see the man that I have a adoring crush on more than anyone on planet earth this is beyond the pale they go to this party or whatever where like they're putting a garland on nomi's head that guy caesar is singing yeah i guess they're having lobster because we've set that up and now we're paying all that off molly actually does show up because she wants to meet andrew carver right and nomi is is thrilled about this and then there's at this party like there's some fireworks that go off and spell out Nomi's name and we have a moment between Julie and Nomi here where Julie's like hey you're gonna need an understudy how about uh how about it's me considering that I didn't tell the police (laughs) that you totally are responsible (laughs) for a crime and Nomi is like oh I see the game you're playing hmm I'll see what I can do. And it's all very hush-hush and, you know, it's like the stupidest conspiracy ever. And then Zach introduces Nomi to Andrew Carver, who is, you know, Fabio with a beard. Andrew Carver is this Nordic handsome man in this oversized purple smoking jacket. He looks like Triple H from you know wwe he is just this giant overly handsome guy nomi's like i like your music and he's like yeah i like your ass and she's like huh he seems kind of gross oh like hey everybody else in this movie right she, right so she's nonplussed by it and then she's like hey molly <laughs> come check out this gross guy molly is like oh my god andrew carver i'm such a fan and uh he's like oh molly hmm how about we chat it up over here a little bit and so Nomi, later on, we see Nomi kind of slow dancing with Zach. And it's a really subdued, quiet scene. Everyone's dancing to jazz music. And, you know, Molly has ended up with Andrew Carver. Nomi is the star of Goddess and is with Zach. Everyone has in their own unique way, gotten the thing that they wanted most in the world. And the movie fades to black and we are left to ponder over the question of does the end justify the means? Oh, if only Chad, because one thing this movie hasn't done that basic instinct did oh so well is rape Chad. I feel like you and I have purposefully not talked about this at all. Because it's horrifying. It is terrible. This movie, at this point, it doesn't end here, by the way, if you've never seen it. Yeah, and and let's be real. There is, what, 20 minutes left in this movie? And we'll hustle through it quick. We're not going to drag this shit out any longer. But the fact that this movie, or this moment, it happens so late in the film, and it comes apropos of nothing. It's just like, oh, yeah, Molly met her hero. Oh, wait, how could that be showgirls gross? This movie goes down a really dark path that I personally did not see coming upon initial viewing. And when it happens, it is incredibly shocking. And the tone of this is unlike anything else in the entire film. And here's what happens. We find out that Andrew Carver, uh, again, he's a famous musician, but I think he's more famous for physically and sexually assaulting women because he takes Molly up to this room and these two guys come in. They look like henchmen. And 
And he's like, hey, we're going to have some fun. And Molly's like, what's going on? And Andrew Carver immediately just slaps Molly across the face. Then she starts to scream and he just punches her in the nose. He rips off her underwear. Two of the guys hold her down. And one of the other guys just violently rapes her. It is a horrific, violent sexual assault. It is up there with the Prince of Tides. It is up there with Deliverance. I'm trying to think like like The Accused. Right. In, in a movie filled with terrible things that you cannot unsee and things that you cannot unhear, this moment makes you feel even more terrible about humanity than the rest of the film combined against one another. This one scene is just, just nauseatingly awful. It is juxtaposed with this moment where Zach is saying to Nomi, like, I could really fall in love with you. And as he's telling her that, there is a hard cut back to the rape in progress, just in case you thought you might ever feel clean again. Showgirls ups the ante some. And only when Molly finally staggers broken and bloody out of this bedroom. She's covered in blood from ankle to head. Yeah. It's just all over her. And she just collapses in front of Nomi. And the rest of the dinner party. Sure. Or the rest of the party guest. Right. It, immediately, it's like, hey, we, we got to get her to the hospital. And so we go to the hospital. And as a viewer, you are left reeling <laughs> of like, what is going on here? And then we are told like, oh, she's in shock. And she's got like all these contusions and broken ribs. And oh, by the way, let's just point out the vaginal tearings. Because yeah. let, let's not let a moment go unwasted where we could be offending someone. Right. Oh, Chad. Nomi and, and Zach are in the hospital room. And then uh, Phil shows up and he gives Zach this yellow file folder. And then Nomi demands to know why the police aren't there. And Zach says, hey, the police aren't coming. And then Nomi's like, well, then I'm going to call the cops myself. And then Zach says, don't do it, Holly. And then Nomi just stops in her tracks because this is her real name. And it turns out that I think she's a wanted woman is that what's going on because he's like he's like i know everything about you holly he's like your father killed your mother and then he killed himself and you're like well he first thought is like that's murder suicide mm -hmm. unless he accidentally killed himself like if he slipped off a ladder while changing a light bulb that could have been the case like he hung her and then fell off the ladder after he had posed right. the body and bumped his head and it's like well he killed the mom and then killed himself but it wasn't you know traditional suicide right no that's just... more double murder just one of them was accidental which means he's never getting out it turns out that uh, Nomi was raised in a foster home and she's got all of this charges like for solicitation and that she was a prostitute in all these other cities. So does she have a warrant for her arrest that's still outstanding or is she just, you know, someone with a sordid history? Yeah, my understanding of it, which is thin at best, Chad, because this movie, again, doesn't go out of its way to explain itself, is that she is not wanted. She just has this very sordid past and by becoming Nomi... She can leave that behind and become something else. She should ask if her social security number is in that folder because she can hand it over and get paid for about three weeks of back pay. Right. And he says, look, the reason that you're not going to call the police is because Carver plays for the same team that we all do. He's a big singer at a different hotel. You're a performer in this hotel. We're all part of a team. If we, you know, rat on him, then we all pay. 
And this is the Vegas team and their STD mascot again. Hi, I'm Gilly, the chlamydia virus, here to tell you how great it is to be part of the Vegas team. Zach says that Andrew Carver will just pay off Molly and uh, she can go open up a dress shop of her own. And then Zach gets real indignant with Nomi and he was like, when you were a hooker, how much did you charge? And she's like, you know, 50 bucks or maybe a hundred. And he was like, oh, you were underestimating, you know, how good you were. And then Nomi just hawks a mouthful of spit right in Zach's face. It's a lot of spit. It's like a camel spit on him. So at this point, she has reached the pinnacle and he's saying, all you have to do is go along and basically let this guy get off on raping your friend and you're always going to have a place here in Vegas. Is that kind of the devil's bargain being struck here? All I know is that she goes and she does up her nails and becomes avenging angel. (laughs) Yeah, for the last five minutes of this movie. She just decides she's going to go and kick the shit out of Andrew Carver. Like yeah, like you said, she paints up her nails, goes to his place, and the bodyguards are like, hey, looking good tonight. And then she's like, hey, no matter what you hear, don't bother opening the door, okay? And they're like, you got it, sexy pants. No matter how much I scream. <laughs> no matter how much I beg and plead, do not open that door. She takes her top off because it's showgirls. And then he sucks her nipples a little bit because it's showgirls. Her nipples are a weird hue of red in this scene. In did you this notice? Scene, like, at first yes. I, I it almost I thought did she put lipstick on her nipples and then part of me like turned into you know like this is some sort of sexy spy movie that I thought well maybe it's like poisonous nipple uh-huh. lipstick or something. It's really weird. It's like Ronald McDonald face paint red. Yeah, I did the same thing. I thought it was poison nipples too, and I was like, what? Well, no, this movie is not. Gonna do poison nipples. I mean, Jesus I wouldn't Christ. put it past it. But at he, this point, anything is possible in the world of showgirls. He's nibbling on her nipples. He's kind of biting them in a somewhat violent way. And then she reaches into her mini skirt and she whips out her switchblade and she pops the blade and puts it to his neck. And she says, "You know, don't scream or I'll fucking kill you." And then she just starts roundhouse kicking him in the head and the face. But the movie doesn't show any of the damage being done to Andrew Carver. In a movie that has not pulled any punches at all in this final scene, it just is like, eh, you you get the idea. Well, and that's the thing is this is supposed to be this great moment of vengeance. But at the end of the day, like you said, she kicks the shit out of him a couple of times, gives him a couple of kins from Street Fighter and then walks out of there and it's just like, boy, I wore him out, fellas. Leave him alone. And they're like, you got it. Why didn't she kill him? Why didn't she kill him? Why didn't she kill the bodyguards? Because they were in right. on it too. Like they get off completely scot-free. At the end of the day, Andrew Carver is going to be a little beat up for a day or two. And then he's fine as well. Like nobody's really being held accountable here. I thought when she pulled out the switchblade, she was going to slit his throat and kill him. Why pull the punch now? Right. You know, like we've been going over the line at every possible turn. Why are we pausing here when it's the woman finally getting a moment uh, in this movie? I thought she was going to kill him and then the other dudes are going to come in and she would kill both of them and then hit the road and, and be like, I'm moving on to another city and I'll find a new identity. But they, they don't do any of that. Well, she kind of does the moving on part. It's just all the other stuff that would make the me- moving on meaningful doesn't get done. 
Like what right, she but did, if, she could have stayed in Las Vegas. If she had killed everyone, and let's assume that security cameras and surveillance wasn't top notch in this place. If she killed them all and left no witnesses, she hits the road, she's gone, nobody knows that she did it. Here, she's Nomi, whatever her last name is, the star of Goddess, who has billboards all over town who just beat up Andrew Carver. There's two witnesses that saw her go in. Andrew Carver's not dead. Yeah. Everybody knows it was her. Like, just go get her. Yeah. And when the police show up, she says, oh yeah, he raped my friend in the hospital. She's still there now. Oh wait, what time is it? No, they released her already. It, it's head scratching. She goes to see Molly and says, Molly, I kicked the shit out of Andrew oh, Carver. Right. He really, I really gave him what for. I think, uh, I think we're even Stevens now. Right. She's like, you're going to be okay. And it's like, that's impossible. She is a hundred percent not okay. She has just suffered this violent rape. And then you on top of it came and said, oh, by the way, the guy who raped you, I just went and beat the shit out of him. Took the, the right. law into my own hands. By the way, don't worry. No cops were called. Just the way we like it. I like it. So I guess best of luck. And then she takes off and right. And then goes to Crystal. And it's like, hey, sorry I shoved you down the stairs and ruined your career for a little bit. And Crystal's still in the hospital. <laughs> How long has this been since she tumbled down the stairs? Remember, she took the tumble. Nomi gets the, the lead role. They throw the party. The horrible scene we just described happens. It, like It's been like, what, a day? Yeah. Two days? <laughs> like three at best, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's the same day? Did she tumble down the stairs that morning and all of this occurred in the afternoon? Sure. Well, you know, it's surprising <laughs> that she doesn't have an understudy already, quite frankly. <laughs> I mean, Julie's already campaigning for it and all, but... <laughs> I think somebody's already pushed Julie down the stairs, and now they're the star of the show. Holy shit, it's probably one of her kids. <laughs> one of those monkeys. I think that's Showgirls, too. One of <laughs> one of Julie's kids and a monkey goes rogue. So when she apologizes for, like, hey, sorry I you know pushed you down, Crystal's like, well, how you think I got my first lead, darling? It's like, what? Are all of you just psychopaths? I just, I pushed this woman down the stairs, darling, and she fell, and I saw the bone come through her leg and go through her abdomen and out her back. It was crazy, darling. Unlike me, she didn't live, darling. And then she says, why don't you come over here and just give me a big old kiss, darling? And then we get this lip smack, tongue flicker, open mouth, woman on woman smooching. It's just like, what are we doing here? I don't know what this relationship is supposed to be in this movie. And then, Chad, the movie's almost over, so let's wrap it up and really drive our theme home, because Nomi is now back uh, on the side of the road in her hitchhiking gear. With her nipples hanging out. Nipples akimbo, a- a thumb and rides, and gets picked up. You're never gonna guess who picks her up, Chad. It's Jeff <laughs> in that same blue pickup truck. And he doesn't recognize her because he's a psychopath as well. Well, she's wearing sunglasses. Right. So how would he recognize? Sure. Like in, in a mustache. It's only been two months since he stole her suitcase. And rode from Las Vegas. 360 miles. They rode and talked. She pulled a knife on him. I would remember that for the rest of my life. Yeah. Not just what she looked like, what she sounded like, what she smelled like. And just nothing. He's got no clue. Uh, Because he's like Andrew Chikatilo or something. (laughs) And he's like, hey, so did you do any gambling while you were in Las Vegas, darling? Uh, Because everybody talks like that. And she's like, yeah. I won too. And he's like, oh, this is so stupid, Chad. He's like, what'd you win? And she goes, I won myself. And I was like, what are you even talking about? When was this ever on the table? What has she become? Who is the person she is now? What did she, who is this character? If she has won herself, what is that? I don't know. 
Right. It's meaningless. It's garbage. It is offensively bad writing. And then she comically pulls a knife on him, Chad, because that's hilarious. And it's like, hey, motherfucker, where's my suitcase? And it's just like, and like the truck's kind of swerving. It's like the final scene of the end. Yeah. <laughs> Where the truck swerving around is presumably she is stabbing him in the liver. There, you see a sign that says like Los Angeles, however many miles. As she's stabbing him, presumably, the camera pans over and we see a billboard with the words Naomi Malone. And then underneath it, it says goddess. And there, it's not even a photograph. It's like a painting likeness of her. And it doesn't say anything about this being a show or that it's at the Stardust Hotel. It looks like the advertisement for a brothel is what it... <laughs> right. I, that's what I would think. And then the camera pans over the top of that and we see a sign for Los Angeles, 280 miles away, implying that Naomi will continue her murderous adventures in Tinseltown, maybe as an actress. Roll credits, the end. Thank God. This movie is fucking bananas, Chad. Yes. It's the most offensive thing we've ever reviewed on this show. I really thought about every movie we've seen. I'm not easily offended, but I was offended at just the, the laziness and the the brashness of this movie. It's unpurposefully in your face. I don't get it. Like, I understand wanting to be brazenly sexual. Like, I don't have a problem with that. But it just seems to go out of its way to not just be sexual, but to be a about its sexuality like i understand i know i keep going back to this menstrual thing but it comes up so much in this movie and it's like hey one mention and i probably wouldn't think about it but the second time she's like i'm on my period <laughs> why are we talking about this can we not have a civilization any longer like there's that one shot in this movie when they're like outside james's apartment and there's that neon cross that uh, in, in neon, it says something like, uh, Jesus is coming soon. And I remember uh, as I watched it thinking, I hope so, because I feel like we have reaped a judgment by allowing showgirls to be a thing that, that existed. I think that every copy should be collected by the government and destroyed. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of censorship, but you make a valid point. Nobody is better for watching this movie. That's true. There's nothing about this that is redeemable. I don't care what anybody says in their own personal thesis that this is a misunderstood masterpiece. I do not think that this movie is better than Basic Instinct. I don't think Basic Instinct is necessarily the greatest movie that we reviewed this season. But yeah, this thing is just a train wreck. You said you bought a Blu-ray DVD of it. I tried to find it on any streaming service and you cannot even rent this yeah. on any of the major streaming services. As of the time of this recording, I watched it on Vudu, which it's streaming service with commercials peppered in. It had all of the nudity that, you know, one could hope and wish for, but you can't even find it. So maybe there's somebody else out there with a similar point of view. That's like, nope, we're not even going to let this be out there for the world. Yeah. Yeah. To experience. The, the harder this movie is to find, the better we are as a species. Here, here. So I, <laughs> as we do at the end of every season, we rate our movies best to worst. But for this particular season, I would like for you to rate these movies from the most sexy to the least sexy on the Bo Ransdell scale of sexiness. Oh, okay. I mean, Showgirls is the least sexy because it is gross. 
I agree with that. And take take your time on this. I know I didn't give you no uh, no no that's that's forewarning on that's this. fine. All right, right above you're so you're going to go back. I'm going you're backwards. Start, I'm going least you're going sexy. Backwards. Okay. Least sexy okay. is Showgirls. Second least sexy. So number five would be uh, ten, which is also kind of gross in its sexuality. But as a movie is just kind of bad. So then let's go Magic Mike is for only because that's not the way I swing. But I can definitely see the argument for that sexuality. I would I would put, oh shit, hang on. Fifty Shades of Grey is less sexy than 10. So I apologize. It is Showgirls, Fifty Shades of Grey, 10, Magic Mike, Basic Instinct, Wild Things. Is that my six? That's your six. Okay. I think Wild Things is is the sexiest of the films. You and I have the same top and bottom. Uh, my bottom is Showgirls. Uh-huh. Above that, I put Basic Instinct. Why so low on that one? I feel like that has some sexiness to it. Michael Douglas in that raping his therapist. Rape, never sexy. Enough. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Above that, I put 10. And then I put 50 Shades of Grey above 10 because it was less creepy and more consensual you like you like a movie that just eases in panties down just <laughs> grabs them by the side just, just takes them slowly down nobody in 50 shades of gray went to mexico to chase a woman and smoke dope and yeah just no all right okay all right, fair enough Showgirls Basic Instinct 10, 50 shades of gray above that i put magic mike and then uh begrudgingly wild things on top why well, begrudging? I I feel like Wild Things is is legit. Like for it being a lurid, steamy, trashy little movie, I I think does its job. Yeah, maybe just because it so much of it takes place in Florida. I mean, where else could it happen? <laughs> quite frankly, nowhere else but. Oh, so man. that is it. That is the end of season six of Pick Six Movies. The loving title of this theme, you can do it. Uh, is being put into the the history books. As always, we're going to take a little bit of time off, regroup, start to pull together another collection of six movies. However, we have decided on the theme of our next season, which will be Game On, where we are going to look at six movies that were inspired by video games. I have been deep in the Pick 6 Laboratories watching a number of potential films for this season and we we do not suffer from a lack of bad films in this category and very few good ones quite frankly no good ones um quite frankly uh, you're probably right i'm trying to trying to think of an example but at any rate (laughs) uh, the ones that i have been looking into specifically the name uve bowl uh is known to some people and he has done a number of these movies, and I've watched more than I should have of, of many of them. And those are real stinkers. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting season to kind of dig into uh, some of the underlying stories of video games, which is another uh, thing that you and I both uh, share a, an interest in, at the very least. So I'm kind of excited to have a good excuse to talk about some of that stuff, too, in addition to the terrible, terrible movies that they spawned. If you have uh, a particular video game movie that you would like for us to review, please, you can send us an email, drop us a line. You can find us. We're on the internet. We're hanging out here and there. Is that pick six movies at gmail.com? 
pick6movies at gmail.com, pick6movies.com, and uh, we're floating around here and there on social media. As always, thank you for listening. Um, We really enjoyed this super sexy season, and uh, we're looking forward to coming back here uh, in a few weeks with season seven as we uh, let the good times roll. Bo, any final thoughts? Yeah, I'm sorry to put the pants back on, but, you know, it was time. Yeah, you were starting to chafe. Until next time, thanks everybody.